My boy, there are three work rules at this studio. Rule number one, as gratiades, art for art's sake. Mr. Mayor. How you doing? One million dollars a year we spend on stories we never even film. Why not? I'll tell you. They don't make me cry. What makes me cry? Emotion. Where do I feel emotion? Here, here, and here. Rule number two. You may have heard MGM has more stars than there are in the heavens. Do not believe Mr. this. Mayor. We have only one star. That is Leo the Lion. Never forget that. Many stars have, and now they twinkle elsewhere. Rule number three. People think MGM stands for Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer. It does not. It stands for Mayer's Ganza Mishpocha. Mayer's whole family. Never forget that. You got a problem? Come to Papa. This is a business where the buyer gets nothing for his money but a memory. What he bought still belongs to the man who sold it. That's the real magic of the movies, and don't let anybody tell you different. Hello and welcome to the Get Your Film Fix podcast and the sixth annual Fixie Award Show. The show that all other award shows model themselves after. I am Lee Carlo, joined as always by Jeremy Fisk and Chapin Hemingway. We are so excited, guys. I think we're somewhat prepared. And thanks to this champagne, we're going to be a little bit drunk. So we're having Nicholas Filat's Palm d'Or Champagne. This was once best known for being the official champagne of the Cannes Film Festival. Uh, obviously now best known for being the drink of choice at the Fixie Awards. What do you think, guys? How is I it? Can literally, I can literally say right now, don't come in here, Palm d'Or. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Uh, I thought this was a fitting fitting choice for the Fixie Awards. Really nice champagne. Um, I know I was joking, guys, about other award shows modeling themselves after the Fixies, but I it did get me thinking that if you remember last year, the Oscars decided not to have a host in the traditional sense, you know, a celebrity that has a monologue and roasts the other celebrities to attract a younger audience. Well, we've never done that, so... They might have gotten that idea from us. You know, one of us comes on here and kind of runs the show, but we don't have a, a host, so Wait, to so speak. so the Oscars got the idea of not having celebrities from us. Yep. And then really what's kind of amazing is that we've been doing this show remotely over Zoom or Skype for years, and now all the award shows are doing that. So I don't know. I don't think I'm far off by saying that we are setting the trend for how an award show should, should run. But um, guys, look, it's been a long year. Of course, that goes without saying. We, along with everyone else, has dealt with a myriad of challenges. And I don't want to speak for both of you, but I think that, you know, this podcast and movies in general have been particularly important to me this year. Uh, you know, one of the small silver linings of the circumstances that we found ourselves in is that I've had a chance to watch a lot of movies. And I think that, uh, in fact, I am probably as prepared as ever for this show. Um, I hope you guys feel the same. Despite all of our challenges, I hope that this podcast and movies have brought you some some joy and reprieve from the horrible outside world. Um, two things I'd like to talk about before we get started. One, very quickly, we always like to do this. I'd like to know what you guys thought of 2020 as a movie year as a whole. It's always hard kind of when we're this close to it, but any broad initial thoughts on the year? Yeah, I'm surprised. I'm surprised because of you know, how many movies got pushed due to the pandemic. 
um, didn't get released, how many movies. I mean, we're going on over a year now. And at the beginning, there was basically six months where there was no productions. And that would affect into 2020. I mean, I think it'll affect 2021 as well. But there are probably movies we didn't get to see this year that would have been made had there not been a pandemic. So that all being said, I'm surprised we got the quality we ended up getting this year. Um, the quality of direction, the quality of acting, and the quality of movies in general. Because I, I do feel like uh, they were just putting out whatever they could and what yeah. what was available. Yeah, I, I actually have to disagree with that a little bit. I, I was listening to our... Um... 2019 fixies which would have been the 2018 year um and in that year i don't think we were as prepared as we are now to your point lee but um my number six movie which was the only movie we you know was the last movie i had put on the list was the favorite um now that was a really great year in movies but that would mean i don't remember what else i had on that list but that would mean that you know if I started with the favorite, that meant a really good year. Yeah, um, yeah. I would say, I don't want to give too much away about my top 10, but I think this has really been like more of a top three, top four type of year for me. Um, I think it's definitely going to have an asterisk on it, at least in my hall of fame. Um, but I do want to say, like, I think we talked, you know, in the summer, um, a little bit about like, well, what's going to happen? You know, are people going to be able to take advantage of this moment um, in film? And uh, I think people have, and I think we've gotten to see some really innovative release patterns. And I think that's left movies that I think may not have gotten as much award attention to really come to the surface. And I'd hope to think that we would have sought out films like Nomadland and Mank, et cetera. But, um, you know, beyond the fixies, I think those movies have gotten a lot of attention, which is great. And I don't think they normally necessarily would have if you had like... Steven Spielberg's West Side Story or, or whatever else was going to fill that sure. um, space. Well, well, if you'd asked me maybe two months ago, I think, Chapin, I would have kind of agreed with you, and you know, thinking that maybe this movie wasn't quite up to my expectations. But, you know, the more some of these movies sat with me, you know, I had a couple revisits. I started to assemble my list. The more I was like, you know what, I'm actually pretty happy with everything and how it came together. I, I didn't really struggle to to fill any any lists you know we we do you know obviously there were some that were much more flush with candidates than others but i have to say i i think that this was a good year yeah um mm -hmm. it remains to that. be seen you know it always is tough at this point to say like okay how was this in comparison to 2018 or 19 you know eventually we'll get to that point but uh all things considered i, I was happy with with the movies that i saw this year uh one other thing i'd like to discuss um is just whether or not you guys have anything um that is represented throughout your picks jeremy last year you brought up the idea of empathy the theme of empathy and i really liked that you you saw that in all of your nominees or a lot of your nominees and you were able to kind of draw um comparisons with each one of those throughout the show and I, and I liked that a lot and I was wondering if there was I have something like that specifically this year but I was wondering if you well, guys had anything I'll, I'll let you guys guess what mine is but you know that's that, I think that's going to be mine too but and I have to give all the credit there to Jeremy um 
just thinking about America and the American dream and the way these different movies, I mean, even a movie that doesn't sort of address that, you know, directly, uh, like a film like Mank, I think has a lot of that in it as well. Um, you know, mm-hmm. that movie is a lot about the way the United States functions through this lens of rich people and, um, you know, the unions and the depression and, and, and these, you know, really important cultural moments in our life. And so, you know, I, I, I found that insight in Minari, the Minari podcast from Jeremy to be really great. And I think that's affected a lot of, I mean, I'm looking at just like my top five movies is it's part of all that, you know? Yeah. I mean, essentially, yeah, I, I've been sort of bringing it up all year long. Um, from first cow all the way to Minari to Nomadland, which watched recently. But yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not going to say the exact same thing Chapin just said because um, that's Sorry. that would be my my uh, sure. And and you know you can see it in another one of my favorites, Greyhound. Um, <laughs> <laughs> thought, I, thought I'd get that joke out of the way. Um, you know, mine could go hand in hand with that a little bit, but I, I think a little bit more specifically, something that I kind of saw revealing itself in my nominees was 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 real people in real moments, and filmmakers kind of capturing authenticity in that way and and putting you in the shoes of certain characters in certain moments, and I really liked that, and those types of things resonate with me, and they did uh, throughout a lot of movies this year. So I'll bring those up as as we go through, and and I'm excited to talk about that. But it is time to get started, guys. Well, wait, got- can I may I say something? Sure. Lee, I wanted to give you credit. You've done a great job, uh, an enviable job. Um, well, both organizing this, but also watching as so many movies. Do, well, can you, you. Can you reveal your, your final total? It's embarrassing because you set up this awesome spreadsheet and so I can see how far. I believe I've watched half as many of the movies as you have. No, that's not true. I've watched. So our spreadsheet probably excludes some movies um, th- that we saw early in the year that just had no relevance or whatever. But. I saw 81 movies on this list. Um, Chapin, you saw 45, so more than half. Uh, um, a little bit. And Jeremy, you saw 55. So it does. The, the totals don't matter, guys. It's not a contest. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, uh, but you won. Speaking of <laughs> but like, I, but I won. <laughs> you know, we we you know the, we've talked a little bit about this. The, the the criticism of the leisure class. I mean, you know, you've got the time as a as a wealthy man. You know, you. I, <laughs> You've, yeah. uh, and you've... that's going to show up in the multiple, a lot of my picks, how I connected to the rich people. <laughs> okay, hurry up, because I've already um, finished right. half of this glass of champagne. Guys, well. we have eight award categories here at the Fixies. Cinematography, screenplay, supporting actress and actor, lead actress and actor, director, and of course, best picture. Uh, we've each nominated five films in each category, except best picture, which has ten. Uh, each nominee gets a point value in ascending order. And then we send those over to Palmer and Associates, who once again have done a fantastic job tabulating those and sending the resulting winners to a secure site, which I have logged into and have pulled up here so that we can open our winners when the time comes. Um, we don't know them. We don't know our, each other's nominees. I love that about this show. Um, it's, it's exciting for us, even if nobody else cares. Um, but obviously, everybody does. So let's get to it. We're going to start off with Best Cinematography. Guys, I'll go first. My number five is Shabir Kirchner for Mangrove. Uh, you heard me talking about this movie for a long time. It's the first movie in the small act series by Steve McQueen. Um, 
and there's always interesting camera work and good cinematography in Steve McQueen's movies, but a couple things that I want to highlight. One, which I'm not sure I caught until a, a repeated viewing, is how often the camera is is moving. And I, not just in the sense that we talk about all the time, but in the fact, an idea that it's just never still. You know, there's some scenes of dialogue. There's scenes in the courtroom. There's scenes, you know, at, at the Mangrove restaurant where just very, very slightly the camera's moving side to side. And it just creates such a unique subconscious sense of unease that I thought was so effective in this movie. And then, of course, you have, you know, some long wonders. You have some, you know, unique overhead shots. You know, there's a there's a shot where the camera is mounted on top of the police vehicle. Uh, and then you have the flip side of that, where he just parks the camera on a tripod and lets a scene of dialogue play out. And all of that stuff just works so well with this movie. Um, and it also has that really great, gritty, authentic look that I love. Um, that's my number five. Yep, shot on film. Sometimes I really think that that is just uh, way too far to go, but it worked so well, and and especially for a production of this scale where you're making like what five or six movies. Yep, to shoot it all on film is extraordinary, and I think really just looks great. All right, Chapin, why don't you give us your number five? So my number five is a little bit of a cheat, but I had to find a way to get it in here somehow, and it is Soul. And there actually are hmm. directors of photography listed, uh, Matt Asperby, Asperby and Ian McGibbon. Um, I would would guess those guys are not real, you know, holding the camera type cinematographers. They may be animators, but we also know that Bradford Young, he's listed as a cultural consultant, but my guess is um, he they, they did with him what they what uh, Pixar does with a lot of most of their movies is, is hire a very famous cinematographer to consult the look of the project. Um, and I, I, you know, it, it's probably not fair to just give it to the cinematographers. Um, but I just love the design of this film. The way it looks was so evocative to me. And just, I, you know, I, I, and, and Lee, you made it clear to me that I've obviously missed a lot with Pixar and it makes me want to go back and, and I'm sure this is just the standard for, with them, but these, the film just kind of blew me away from that perspective and the way that design can kind of inform, um, I should say design and photography can inform the so much of the sort of meat of that story was so cool. And uh, it's a little bit of a cheat, but I hopefully, hopefully no, you guys will allow I, I love it. I love it. I mean, another example of why the Fixies are just the, the premier award show. We're not afraid to do things like this. Um, I found that an interesting pick, Chapin, because, you know, we've had some conversations about, you know, the priority of animated films on our watch list and, you know, how they play factors into other categories other than picture. Um, yet here you go. You got a nominated, uh, a nominee for cinematography with an animated film. I love it. Jeremy, you're up. All right. My number five is M.I. Litton Men's for Vast of Night. Um, it's probably going to be my, well, it, it certainly is going to be my only Vast of Night nomination, but Okay. Uh, if you watch this movie, you really, I mean, it sticks, the cinematography sort of sticks out as something it's really trying to showcase. I mean, you have that, that shot that goes through the whole town and into the gymnasium, this, this one take um, that was probably, I don't know, how long was that? Five, ten minutes long? Yeah. Where yeah. It's, a, it's a tracking shot that goes into the gymnasium. I'm sure they had to, if there was a behind the scenes, it would be interesting to see how they hand, 
handed that camera off to the next um, cameraman from one to the the other. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's definitely a showcase for him, uh, and it's almost like it's almost like, hey, look, this is what I can do. Uh, give me give me a better opportunity, but this is what I can do, and I think that was was the impressive part about that film. Yeah, I, I mean, like the pick for a movie with a budget less than a million dollars. It's extraordinary what they achieved photographically in that movie. That's it the- is. It shows the importance of if you can getting good people in you know important positions because really low budget movie, you know, not that it's hugely memorable, but it could have been entirely forgettable. You know, and do you think it's not- it was? What I liked about it is I don't think it distracted from the overall movie experience because it like no, no you I do think watch it's... it you do watch it and you go okay they're kind of showing off but it, it's not in a bad way I don't think well you get the sense that like you know I think a lot of times in these kind of movies and I've been thinking a lot today for some reason about when I made my movie. T- 10, 11 years ago and you're looking at ways to like get money on the screen like we want this to look like we've put some time and effort and money yep. into this and owning a town in the sense that you can like put a car put a, a, a film a, a, a digital film camera onto a go-kart and race from one location to the other while you know filming is extraordinary and it's something it would be hard to do in a 300 million dollar movie but they didn't they did this movie for so inexpensive um of a budget that you really feel it. And I, th- I think it does add to despite, despite just like being inherently cool, it does add to the film's atmospheric qualities. Sure. Okay. On to number four is my number four is Helene Louvart for never rarely, sometimes always there is such an intimacy to the filmmaking here. And there is a, you know, an added grit at some times that I really like. This was shot on Super 16, which I think was an interesting choice, but it it gives you a very kind of, uh, not low budget, but a very just simple look while this camera sort of spies on its characters. And, you know, there's a lot of really close close-ups in this movie that, again, adds to the intimacy. <clears throat> That's the thing I took away most from it. But it's the pacing too. You know, the camera kind of just paces around. It follows these characters. It's about this character of Autumn and the camera makes sure that you know that. And despite all the other things going on, it makes sure that your focus is on her. And, you know, the one scene that is probably most famous for this movie when it just holds on her during the the never rarely, sometimes always interview scene is a perfect example. The, The camera knows, the cinematography is aware of the idea that we need to be focusing on this character in a very intimate and personal way. And I love that. I also just kind of love the contrast in some of the scenes when they're out in the big city of New York. There's all these big, bright neon lights that, you know, looks like an appealing place, but they they appear very small and lost amongst it. And I just think there's a lot of th- things that work really well about the way this movie was shot. That's... I mean, it certainly um, evokes what the filmmaker is going for. I mean, there is... Uh, a definitely a level of compatibility to the acting and the writing and the feel and the mood of that film with its cinematography. Um, it's it's another one of those films, like you're talking about, Lee, where it sort of 
puts you in the real world. I mean, these are actors, but there is a, a quality of we're sort of just following regular people yep. to it. Um, so it, it certainly achieves its goals in that way. Chapin, do you disagree? I don't disagree with that. I don't think that cinematography is anything extraordinary at all. I think the choice to shoot on 16 was definitely smart. Um, but yeah, I mean, you guys know how I feel about that movie. Um, we do. My number um, four all right, Chapin, you're up. is Christopher Blavelt for First Cow. Um, this gentleman has been working with Kelly Reichardt since Meek's Cutoff. Um he also shot Emma this year, which I thought was a interesting film from a cinema cinematogra- cinematographic perspective. <laughs> Mouthful. Um, I love the way this movie looks. It looks great. It feels yeah. it feels like film, but it was I think it was shot digitally. Um, it's uh, it's framed in the Zack Snyder four by three of Justice League. Fame, um, but I think it works a <laughs> That's lot. That's what they call it now—the just the the Zack Snyder yeah. uh, aspect ratio. I, I believe they've been doing that since Meek's cutoff, but I could be wrong. Um, it was in Meek's cutoff, yep. So I, I just I think this. Hey, ben, I'm out, out of curiosity. What do you think that frame, that four by three framing, gives a movie? Like, what quality does it, it instill? It in this film, it feels, um, it feels old school. It feels old like an old portrait or something, you know, mm-hmm. you look, it's almost like as if you're like looking at a, at an artifact from that time. I mean, obviously that doesn't make any sense because maybe we had photography then. I don't know, but you know, it doesn't matter. It, yeah. I know. It, I think you're right though. I think that's a good point. Yeah. It feels like it's your, it feels old school. Um, and sometimes it can be annoying and I don't agree with the re I don't think that the reasons Zack Snyder uses it in justice league are, are, are right either. But, um, it is. It is sort of like when you're, at least when you're shooting on film, um, and 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 probably in the case of the camera they used for first cow, it is like the maximum the camera can see. So you know, it it's, it sort of begs the question: like, do you want your movie to be immersive, or do you want to take full advantage of the camera? Because it's it's a little bit different, you know, especially if you're watching things at home, um, or or in the theater for that matter. You know, you you want filling every inch of the screen means shooting in sixteen by nine or or 185 um a, a little bit of a wider format so so you're seeing less it's taking up less room on your screen but this is this is um in first cow is this is the most that camera can see and i think there's also just like a a a, a little bit of a arm's length distance that that creates too that like you're not you're you know sh- and, and kelly rocker kind of uses as i recall uses the close up sparingly in that film and it's harder, I feel like, to frame a close-up in that more square frame. And I think um, it just it just keeps things a little bit uh, that there's that sort of like hesitancy, hesitance towards intimacy that she has um, that you eventually get to. But I think there's something there about kind of keeping you a little bit at a distance. That that was an honorable mention for me. I it, everything you said aside, I I just love the way this movie looks. Like it just mm-hmm. has like a very like crisp, authentic, like full look in the frame. And I just think it, that that's, you know, it, I, I, part of it maybe is kind of the lushness of the, the setting, but it just looks really good. 
Well, and I think what they do really well is they create a sense of uh, of dirtiness, for lack of better word. Like I think the four by three um, helps with the set design, helps kind of make it feel like you're, like you're there. I mean, the amount of mud and dirt and dust and like you just it de- it doesn't feel glossy at all. Nothing about it is like inviting in a in a sort of um, beautifying old west way it's actually quite the opposite and probably more realistic to what it was i will say that one cool claim of fame that i feel like i have is that it's very possible and probably probable that i have shot with the same camera they shot this film with which is pretty cool jeremy there's only so many of those in this little town of ours (laughs) you only have three cameras alexa minis in this class (laughs) Uh, my number four is Sean Bobbitt for Judas and the Black Messiah. Um, another mon- honorable mention for me. Yeah, mine too. It's it's a beautiful movie. I mean, it had we we talked about obviously on the podcast what the flaws were, but I don't think this is one of them. Um, I think it's more classical in comparison to everything we've talked about so far. Uh, classical cinematography I mean just trying to make every frame a painting or a you know uh, know, uh, a a beautiful image but uh, it works and um, I think it serves the story so uh, yeah Jeremy you love the and not that we don't but you love the the 70s aesthetic right like this movie takes place in the 60s but you know it's that gritty city right but it's not pretty in like the taxi driver sort of way no it's no a, it's, not, it's glossier it's, than that it's it it's, is but it's it, like it's a, sort of it's sort of the it's like they make no mistakes it's cinematography of of my list but it also has like a like you know we've said, it's said it like five times already it has a grittiness and like a, a roughness to it that even if it's polished and looks good, it still feels like you're kind of in the streets. You're, you know, the camera is is right there in the middle of the action. And we talked about it. I mean, that movie is technically well done. Um, so that was that was definitely a consideration for me. Um, and speaking of technically well done, my number three uh, is Eric Messerschmidt for Mank. That's my number three, um, too. I mean, yeah, talk about just like expertly creating a, a look that combines a modern movie with a, a 30 or 40s movie homage. Um, you know, whether it's the harsh indoor lighting, the cigarette smoke, the, the double exposures, the lighting, like all these, all these like lighting techniques that you learn in film school that you never actually see in movies anymore are done in this movie in a, in a self-referential way, but also in a, in a way that is just part of the movie. And I, I just think... You know, Messerschmitt is not like it's not like Fincher hired Roger Deakins to to do this very specific homage slash, you know, modern movie. Messerschmitt's worked with him on on Mindhunter and has some other credits in the camera department, but this is his first feature as a direct, director of photography. And man, what a what a entry! I, this is just some expert work. Yeah, it's it's super ambitious, and I also think it's the most risky decisions of of the year as far as cinematography i feel like a lot could have gone wrong yeah. with doing this digitally black could've and been, white the way they did it yeah yeah it could have it could have looked really really bad 
Yeah, it, it's a didn't. it's a striking movie. And to your point about Messerschmitt uh, Lee, uh, Emerson graduate Jeremy. Um, yep. I think it takes a all the best come from Emerson. It goes right? against the I feel like the cinematographer's or at least the classical sense of a cinematographer's way of working to work the way that Fincher does. Um, they go out of their way to sort of capture um, the most sort of dull, raw image and almost all the effects that we see in the film are done in post the 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 effects that make it look like an older movie um with the exception of black and white which they were locked into because they used this specific grayscale red camera um but you know they all these effects are created in post and you really have to believe and trust your director to do that um I think it's not how I would do things. I, I don't always agree with it, but I do think Fincher is a genius in the way he utilizes the cinematography here. Um, and it would be number one. Cause I just love the way it looks, but I, I, I well, I'll talk about that later. Um, but I, it's, 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 it just doesn't look like anything we've seen before. It's kind of like a hybrid. And, and I think it's perfect mm-hmm. for this movie. It's a hybrid of sort of digital technology um, and the sort of fin- the way, Jeremy, you've talked a lot about about it that um, that Fincher has developed that digital look, but also it got this through this old school lens, and I think it's just like so cool. All right, yeah. Jeremy, what is your number um, three? My number three, and this is where it becomes interesting because I don't, I'm not sure how uh, Palmer and Associates scored this, but I have Shabir. Kirchner, I believe, uh, for Lover's Rock. Oh, okay. Interesting. Uh, it, it was, I know we we all kind of had a pause moment when we watched Lover's Rock <laughs> like, and said, what are we, what are we, said, the fuck is that? What are we getting ourselves <laughs> into? But the cinematography and the editing of that film were fantastic. And uh, he does a great job in intimate spaces in this film in particular um that i was kind of just that was the part of this movie that really sort of blew me away uh it 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 went above and beyond the sort of source material and the whole concept of that film and you can dis i mean i know a lot of people disagree with us and a lot of people it's their favorite movie of the year but um i under like at least i understood that aspect of it and i think he did a great job uh so yeah i mean he did as far as i understand he did the cinematography for all the lovers rocks movies so all the small acts yeah i mean this all the small acts Wait, movies. But, so did he was he on your was that the same guy from that did mangrove yes yeah, so okay, that's okay. why i'm saying it'll be interesting to see how this was ranked with I'm, uh palmer and associates i'm proud of you jeremy for for finding something in that movie. I mean, I was so thrown by it. You know, obviously yeah. I, I watched the small acts movies in order. So I, I watched Mangrove and then to go to Lover's Rock, which is just entirely different. And maybe there's themes that are consistent. If you really dig into them, I'm sure there are. But um, I was just so like, I think lost yeah. watching Lover's Rock, trying yeah. to understand what I was watching, yeah, that's the... that it was hard for me to take anything away from it. And even though it's only like 80 minutes, I wasn't going to go back to it to see if the cinematography works. So I'm proud of you for finding something there. Jeremy. That's the, f- the funny thing about expectations. Um, and I'll talk about that with another movie coming up, but like I, I went into that with like the, you know, like this is the, this is the 
best movie of the year for a lot of people, but also the best movie from a like a celebrated series in small acts. And I was like, what what did we just watch? But in retrospect, <laughs> I do think of the three small acts that I watched, it's my favorite. Um, oh, interesting. So, uh, yeah, let's move on. Okay, so my my number two um, is is kind of surprising. I I have to say it's Lucas Zal for I'm thinking of ending things. Uh, Chapin, I don't think that you saw this. Oh. This is the rare podcast that you missed when Ridley was born, um, and that's probably good. I mean, me and Jeremy didn't have a a lot of great things to say about this movie as a whole, but it actually does have a lot of good things in it, and the cine- cinematography is among them. Um, it's, it is actually beautifully shot. There's some, you know, stunning visuals of the, you know, scenes at night in the snow that just look very dreamlike and picturesque. But aside from that, there's, there's a lot of things that are really intentionally done to kind of create a mood and an ominous nature to this movie. Um, it has a lot to do with the lighting. It has a lot to do with, uh, you know, how, how the camera tricks you with its angles and how things are changing. And it's the more I thought about it, the more I was like, this is actually some really fantastic work that even if the movie doesn't totally work, this is playing its part to try to make it work. And I had to give it credit because, you know, it's one of the movies that I've kind of thought the most about the cinematography. There's a lot of images from this movie that have stuck with me. And, um, you know, one in particular is just is just uh, Jesse Buckley's character standing outside in the snow, and it just looks amazing. And there's these like soft edges that make it very dreamlike, which is intentional. That plays a part in what this movie is trying to do. Um, so it's my number two, Lucas Zoll. Yeah, that was a that was a tough movie for me to even reconcile getting getting any sort of nominations for because i really struggled with that film the yep. first time i saw it uh right. you're up number two Chapin. Uh, my number two is hoita van hoitema for tenet here we go um the tenet no, you know suite. what no 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 this is an honorable mention for me but i want to hear what shape i want to hear why this is so high on your list Chapin. specifically so i think um Nolan's work with, um, what was the guy's name beforehand? The cinematographer before Wally Fister. Yeah, Wally Fister was a little overpraised. Um, I, I I found his work to be, you know, kind of not boring. I mean, nothing in Nolan's movies are boring. But when when you look at some of the criticism that's been waged against Nolan, like about being a little, I don't know, traditional or you know, is the good way to put it, but, um. I, I, I like I like the look of those movies too. Um he won an Oscar for Inception. But I just think that Hoyta Van Hoytema has just pushed Nolan just a little bit into just a little bit more exciting photography. And I love I mean, I just think the the inherent like the scale of what they do, shooting on large format on film is just really, really cool, especially of a movie of this scale. Um the you know they don't do they might they might do a little bit of it but they 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 tend to i think nolan tends to try to grade his movies photochemically instead of digitally and there are these like artifacts of that where like you know shots don't necessarily match exactly i'm thinking specifically of that scene where in the beginning when uh 
uh, John David Washington is being tortured. And some of those shots are just kind of like a little underexposed and not like not quite like super perfect. And I love those little flaws. Like, um, I think it just makes the movie look really, really cool. And, um, though, you know, we've, what's interesting is that we've gotten to a point where digital photography and digital color grading have pushed movies in a place where, you know, you'd think that we would get all these, this variety of different looks and we do, but, the old film look that we were chasing initially when we first started making movies digitally has kind of gone out the door. And so when you've got a big blockbuster movie that still retains that traditional film look, it kind of looks like nothing else that's come out. Um, And I like it. So look, this was an honorable mention for me and it has a a lot to do with what you talked about is that we give Nolan so much credit for, the practical effects and doing everything in camera, but it's his cinematographer that's doing all these things in camera. So the credit should be spread out a little bit. And I think Hoyta Van Hoytema, what, what is his last name Hoytema or just, or Van Hoytema? Cause I don't like saying his whole name. It's too much of a yeah, Just call him Hoyta. Just call him Hoyta. Yeah. We got to give Hoyta some credit here because he is doing some incredible things that no other, you know, filmmakers are doing. Um, I've read some conflicting things, Jape, and maybe you can clear it up about the the backward scenes, mm-hmm. like how those were captured. Yeah, and often they ran film backwards to the camera. Which is incredible. Incredible, and, yeah. And innovative and really never been done. And so what I wonder so, about when uh, when when Hoitza has to film these Nolan movies, which are what he's like most famous for, but he has a lot of extraordinary work for other directors, if he kind of like size to himself because he knows he's going to have to have an IBEX camera <laughs> on his shoulder for six months. Yeah. Oh, for fucks. I have a chiropractor. Yeah, he must be jacked. Yeah. All right, Jeremy. Uh, all right. Well, we'll just go through my number two real quick because we already talked about it. It is Eric Messerschmitt for Mank. So okay. there we go. Just going to say it and move oh. on. This is going to take all the fun out of this category. My number one is Joshua James Richards for Nomadland, that's my, guys. That's my number one, too. And my number one, too. Okay. Boring. Uh, I mean, this photography just, like, takes you on a quote-unquote nomadic journey, right? It's it's supposed it's supposed to evoke emotion. Uh, it's supposed to work with the story. Yes, it's beautiful. Yes, you can use our, our Brokeback Mountain theory where it's just filming beautiful no, landscapes. That's not, that's but not it's it's not just that. It's it. I think I think, you know, cinematography does have to be more about more than about more about more than just beauty and you know technical prowess it has to be consistent with your movie and and it is and you know the shot that sticks in my head is just the 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 dolly shot with Frances McDormand walking through this kind of nomad camp and you're seeing everything she's seeing and you see the beauty of it and you see why it's appealing but then they're not afraid to kind of get very up close and personal with characters during monologues and dialogues just so that you can then connect with those characters. I, I think this is this is just great work. Um, we often talk about the collab, the close collaboration between cinematographer and director, and a lot was made of that for this movie. But um, Joshua James Richards and Chloe Zhao went to bed in the same bed every night while making <laughs> Nomadland. So I think that there's a different level of closeness uh, in this particular <laughs> partnership. But um, they're like they're like talking only, about only the shots. for the movie, right? Yeah. It was right, like right. No, something no, they, they decided they just are, for the relationship of the movie um, in real life. And I think um, 
there's just like such a, and you can just tell this kind of the filmmaker that Chloe Zhao is like the intimacy of their relationship. Um, and the, the, the camera work in this movie is so connected to the way the film develops. It's just such a key aspect of it that it just, it's, and so much relies on it. It's just, it's so important and, um, it's extraordinary. They've taken the Malik mantle and evolved it and run with it. And, and, and I am on board. I can't wait to, I, 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 now that we've got some time, I can't wait to go back and visit the writer. I know he was nominated two years ago for you, Lee and, Mm-hmm. Um, Jeremy, anything well, I, to add? Yeah, I think the Malik point is it should be sort of reiterated because I think what the what's most important about what they did here, uh, especially Joshua James Richards, is utilizing that feel that you get from Malik, but in a more direct, specific way to, towards the story. So instead of it becoming this sort of dreamlike floating mood enhancer it it is it is that but more intimate to the character's development which i think takes that and it's and does it more more specific and and maybe even better it's not and it's not easy you know it's like i think if you you know a little bit about a way a film set and i bet the way that Eric Messerschmitt works, for example, you know, you sit up, you set the, you set your cameras, you have a lot of cameras, a lot of technology, a lot going on, you get your lighting right, you film it, you film it until you get it, get it right. But having, building in your process, the ability to improvise into your camera work is extraordinary when you're making a movie of this scale. And right. And you don't have the time either with something no, like this, because no, you, have, you have to capture well, basically those you're moments. trying to yeah. do it in like an hour for it. So all the stuff you like this Fincher would never be able to make a movie like this because he can't control <laughs> he can't control dusk. Uh, right. Despite what he may think he can't control dusk. No, so it's a totally different style. No, Fincher yeah. would just be like, we're going to, we need a hundred takes of dusk. So it's it, going to take us 70 days to get this. He just it's, do it digitally. Yeah. Um, all right. So guys, so interestingly, although the 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 result won't be a surprise, we did have eleven different nominees in this category wow. among the three of us, which is uh, impressive. Uh, but the best cinematography fixie goes to Joshua James Richards for Nomadland. All right, Jeremy, Hi. why don't you kick us off for screenplay? Sure. Um, number five, I have Rada Blanc for 40 year old version. And I really enjoyed this movie. I, we, I know we haven't gotten to talk about it at all. We didn't have a podcast on it, but I definitely got a very original, original vibe from this movie. Like the sort of vibe I got back in the day watching like swingers, just somebody with a piece of paper uh, writing their very specific and unique story down on it and able to get it out to the world. And I really appreciated it on that level. I think it was a little long, um, but I I thought it was maybe one of the funnier movies of the year too. Yeah. Um, it was just such, she's just got such a unique voice in the fact that she was able to show that um so well to the world uh i think i think definitely warrants a screenplay nomination for her i, I got to watch like 
the first half hour, 45 minutes of this movie. And it was like the, one of the funniest things I had seen all year long. And, um, just, just, and it was also kind of refreshing. We've, we've been watching all these like woke culturally important movies. Right. And it was, and she, is... she was just very irreverent about those ideas. And <laughs> when she, when she's talking it's... to the kid, she's like, when they're, <laughs> Those girls are fighting in this in the classroom, and she's like, "Now, girls, I mean, <laughs> uh, gender neutral young people, or whatever she says." It just, oh man, it just it was just so I, refreshing. And, this is interesting. I did not respond to this movie at all. No, it's um, it's not well. I would just say it's not well executed. I don't think like the acting and the the editing is pretty bad. And um, yeah, I'll be curious, Jeremy. I know you've been talking a lot about this movie. Um, so I'm curious to see if this shows up anywhere else, but there, I, I didn't dislike it. There was just not a lot that I took away from it, but I, I like guess the originality of it is, well, that's what I was going to say is the screenplay is, is new and fresh. And I think and she's I like really that. good in it too. Yeah. I think she, mm-hmm. I mean, without her, this doesn't exist. So if she's bad and the screenplay is bad, then yeah, I don't think this movie can really work, but I just love seeing, and it was Sort of the same thing I the with Malcolm and Marie. I just like seeing these sort of original uh, cinematic ideas that you kind of just take and run with that feel like sort of old school, almost nineties filmmaking. I, I I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I like it. I, yeah. I'd be okay with a overweight black woman taking the mantle of like personal filmmaking away from Woody Allen. I think that would show a progression in our thing i love that she's playing herself and that's such a cool thing and this is another good example of a movie that in in another year might not ever you know show up Mm -hmm. you know all right chapin what's uh what's your number five my number five is lee wannell i think is how you say his name for the invisible man oh wow i'll tell you what i i if if you could just count the first 30 minutes of a movie then yeah definitely yeah, why? Where do you think it went wrong? It just it so. Well, I don't know if it had a lot to do with screen the screenplay as much as the filmmaking, but like that that first scene of the Invisible Man was just so captivating, and then it really kind of just became a movie we've seen before to me. Oh, I disagree. Um, I so okay. So this they were developing a. Universal was developing a monsters universe. They were trying to do a cinematic universe with the, with the <laughs> monsters that that were that, that were I, kicked off. I don't know that were kicked. I could would be interested. Um, I would too, but it was kicked off by that Tom Cruise mummy movie that just failed, and so I think they've scrapped all the movies. But they like, I think Johnny Depp was going to play the Invisible Man, or maybe it was Javier Bardem. One of those guys. They had they had them lined up, um, and I think they put the movie in turnaround and then made this movie. And this is. You know, you you hear like a mo- a modern take on the Invisible Man, and you kind of roll your eyes at what that would be. But this was just so smart and innovative the way this movie was conceived that this, and in a way that you can actually believe it that that somebody was able to make a suit that is that makes you an, an, uh, essentially invisible. And um, well, and I love that it's couched in this relationship. Um, this abusive relationship, which which makes it feel modern and topical, mm-hmm. um, in just well, enough. I way. think, yeah, I think they what the the writer did a great job of is bringing in sort of the the Me Too movement, the 
having a tough time believing the woman. I mean, literally, she's talking about this guy doing all this stuff and nobody can find him because he's invisible, you know? So it's her, her word against his, but um, it's it's a good allegory of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a good movie. I, I mean, I, it's it's not the type of movie that I typically like. You know, it was a, a February-released horror movie. That did very well, um, right, I think? <laughs> yeah, it was one of the best uh, theatrical-released <laughs> uh, movies in 2020. Um, and, like, I, I really like Elizabeth Moss. I, th- I think she's... I, I'm, I'm, I don't know. I'm, like, lukewarm on the roles she's choosing, but she is... She is looking for interesting roles oh, rather than just yeah. popular roles, so I like that about it. But um, I'm glad this made your list because this is a movie I didn't think we'd have a chance to talk about at all. Uh, my number five is Mike Makowski for Bad Education. Mm. I'm gl- really glad um, this is on your list. So, so I watched this movie a while ago, and I, you know, it kind of just left me. And you guys both spoke highly of it, and it forced me to kind of revisit it. And I'm glad that I'm glad that I did because. I actually think this screenplay is really smart in in one very specific aspect in that it could have so easily have gotten away with just being a simple story with simple characters. Like it's interesting enough that this happened and they could have just told that. But, you know, this this writer was insistent on making sure that the characters were layered and and had dimension. And not only that, but that those layers and dimensions were consistent with their actions. So you have all of these characters in this movie who are just so obsessed with status and money and the, uh, the people's impression of them, and that motivates their actions and ultimately motivates what happens in this movie. And I think a lesser movie that we've seen many times before doesn't bother with that. Just just decide that it's going to tell a story about this the uh, these people that stole money from the from from the uh, the school board and and from the um, the the county school program, and instead, like you have these little nuanced things with like Hugh Jackman's character, like putting cinnamon on his face to hide the bags under his eyes, like because he's so obsessed with a, a, like his appearance and how people see him. And that translates to the decisions he makes. And that's good writing. I mean, that's there in the script. And I think a lot of credit needs to be given for taking what really just a lot of people would have been happy with done simply and and inserting those layers and dimensions. And I, I thought that was great. Yeah. I, again, that movie was one of the bigger surprises for me of the year. It was sort of one of those like, it was on our on our spreadsheet, and I hadn't seen it. But it but it and wasn't. It, Chapin told me to add it because, like I said, I saw it and I just forgot it. Well, I yeah, I I mean, when I watched it, I was going through the spreadsheet, and I was like, oh, this seems like it'll be an easy one. You know, mm-hmm. like you have those nights where yep. it's like, I don't really want to get into Wolf Walkers tonight. Let's try Bad Education. It seems like it'll, and it was. It, like you said, it was surprisingly good and surprisingly smart. So I'm glad to see that is making lists. I, I think the interesting thing, I, I really enjoyed that movie. And obviously I was the one who wanted to add it to the thing. And, but um, it ended up not making anything else on my list. Uh, and I think that had a lot to do with it, you know, oddly in a year when it didn't really matter if you had a theatrical release or not it being kind of an HBO movie and feeling very much like an HBO movie, which I love. <laughs> Right, but isn't that weird it, that HBO movies have something yeah, about them? Yeah, there's something that... that felt small about it, even though I, 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 
I and I love the Hugh Jackman performance. Like, it, I thought he was going to be on my list, and I don't know. I'm really glad it's on yours because I agree. It's such a it's such a good it's like the, movie, and it, and it, it's like the opposite of last year with Bombshell. That was like such a HBO yeah, movie that yeah, was released in theaters. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, all right, all right, I'm up. Right? You're up. Yep. Uh, I didn't even mean to mention this in my uh, defending of a uh, 40 year old version, but my number four is Sam Levinson for uh, Malcolm and Marie. And this movie has its problems, and some of it is structurally. Um, which usually for me becomes a red flag and, and wouldn't be a fixie nominee. But like I said on the podcast, I just really loved it. its ambition and that this movie just felt like, oh, we got to try to figure out how to make a film right now. Let's put two actors together. And a lot of the dialogue was really, really good. Um uh, the performances were really, really good, and it. I just, it just felt, it, it felt written in all the right ways. Like when you, when you sort of tell, like, it, when, when a a writing can inspire you, I'm, um, as a filmmaker, that's I, what it felt like. I'm conflicted because I agree with everything you just said, but the movie just felt overwritten to me. Well, I was going to say it feels written in all the wrong ways. Like, I so I, it's good dialogue. It's good, you know, but does this movie, does the script ever justify why these characters are saying and feeling the things that they are? And maybe that goes back to like the structural thing that you're talking about, Jeremy, that maybe isn't there. Um, it, it's not, it wasn't ever going to make my list. And this is a personal reason that I just don't like to hear and see couples behave this way with each other. Like it's just, it's you're, I think you're on the wrong podcast. Well, look, I, I, so, but that aside, like to me, I don't know, maybe, maybe the term Chapin is overwritten or something. This is, this is, this is the interesting thing I think about this question is that when you say we're going to make a movie like this, that's essentially a, a throwback to like, you know, mid nineties movies that were very focused on dialogue and have a, you know, little tr- bits of Woody Allen and other things mixed Tarantino, into it. Tarantino mixed yeah. into it. And, um, you know, this is a movie we're making during as a, as like, you know, specifically because we're in quarantine and this is what we can do. And so it's going to rely a lot on the dialogue. Does that mean if it has too much dialogue, it's bad or that the screenplay is bad? No, I don't think so. And so, in that sense, I think I'm going to say this is okay, because um, I enjoy this movie a lot too, Jeremy. And um, but it just it, it, it at the end of the day, I think it was like the, what I'll remember for the movie, for good or bad, is them talking to each other, and they talk a lot, and they they. But that was the movie. That's the movie. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Uh, what do you guys got? All right, Japen, you're number four. Number four is. Um, Thomas Vinterberg and Tobias Lindholm for another round. I, you know, in a, in a, <laughs> in a year full of wrenching emotional movies for me, this was such a breath of fresh air at just the exact right time as I needed it. But it's still a movie that's about people and them and their struggles in life. It still has substantive ideas. Um, 
I'm going to take this 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 time to announce now that next year's Fixies will be in Vegas, where we will be conducting the same experiment, the three of us. <laughs> yeah, 100%. Um, it's such an original good idea. Uh, I just wanted to point out that in um, Danish, this movie is called um, Translate drunk. to Binge Drinking, but which I think is drunk. It's D-R-U-K. So I'm not really sure how that translated to another round. But um, besides that, like, I just a, just a lovely film, um, and I and I think a lot is owed to the the screenplay. It's a it's a very sort of charming original idea, and I I you know a lot of times um, with another movie that will come up that I'll try not to spoil, but um, on this list I think um, filmmakers from Scandinavia going to English made a, a challenge um, I think for for some of us for a particular film. But this film was sort of the opposite. You know, it was in Danish and it had a lot of sort of Scandinavian ideas. I think I think we think of the Netherlands as being in is that's what the, the Danish is, right? I think it's part of Scandinavia, but if it's not, you know, it's it's close to there. <laughs> and uh, um <laughs> general area. And uh so I just want to say uh you know, it I, I think this film felt very accessible despite being kind of like about a place that we are have I I at least have very little familiarity with. Uh, it checks a lot of boxes. The screenplay, I think, it you know, it's it's a, obviously it's a great concept. Um, it's got great characters. It's got relationships. It's got a, a story arc, and it's got a lot of you know big range of emotions. But you know, for me, what I liked about this screenplay was it's like it doesn't necessarily resolve anything. It's not that's not the idea. It's really about the characters coming to terms with what makes them happy or really like what they value right. and just accepting those things instead of trying to change them. And I liked that it had that to say. Right. And, and in a movie that like you would, that if it were the American version would probably end with uh, Mads Mikkelsen being sober and living a sober life. He's kind of dancing drunkenly on the, on the shores of yep. in the port of Copenhagen or whatever. Uh, it's such a wonderful moment. All right, my number four is Steve McQueen from Mangrove. Um, starting to see a trend here. I, Honorable I, mention for you me. Really like I don't have a lot movies, to say. Please, the small acts. Um, I I don't want to compare this the whole time to Trial of Chicago Seven, but in the screenplay category, it's a little inevitable. I think what separates Mangrove from what Sorkin did, and and we love Sorkin, and we and it, even if the things don't entirely work in Chicago 7, those are things that we like about him. Mangrove takes itself very seriously. And I think as a result, the big dramatic moments are more earned and they work. And when you get these long speeches and these long monologues and these big moments, I I just found them so much more impactful than I did in Trial of the Chicago 7 because this entire Mm. movie like treated the subject matter with the respect that it deserved like this is something that happened and happens and is serious and it's not a joke and I, i'm not just dis- i'm not saying that sorkin is is making a joke out of you know racism in trial of chicago seven or making a joke out of you know how um corrupt certain systems are but what mcqueen does with mangrove is tells this story really it seems to me as as true as it was and i thought that it was really extraordinarily well written i thought the monologues which there are a lot of 
always felt earned and were and were important and said important things and just had you completely glued. Yeah, I think in a yeah. in a world uh, in a in a year where, um, at least in millennials and Gen Xers or whatever we call those generations below us, when a lot of these people participated in protests or at least supported protesters, um, it was important and meaningful to have a have a movie that um, showed and demonstrated to people that this is there's a long history of this and. There has been people who have come before you um, who have paved the way for this kind of thing. And and unfortunately, the movie that's gotten the most attention for that is Trial of the Chicago 7. But really, Mangrove is a much better film and a much better representation and more prescient in terms of the kind of protests we have now uh, this year or rather last year. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. yeah well, they're, mar- they're marches, you know, quote unquote. You know, it's the, they. In Mangrove, there's a scene where they march and they, you know, they announce why they're there. But a a protest, whether it should or not, has taken on the connotation of being aggressive, I guess, for lack of a better term. And you actually do see that happen, you know, regardless of whose fault it was. You see that happen in Trial of Chicago 7. In Mangrove, you see them march and and then the police push back. But it's also like clashing with the police over racial racial issues specifically and that's very prescient to last year and and but i and the great great point because i love that we see that this is as much as this is a huge issue in america it's not isolated to america this took place in notting hill in england and this is a true story and it could have taken place very easily in any country in any city in america um and so it's it was very easy to to relate to as well yeah, I'm gonna hold. I'm gonna hold off on my opinions of that because I, I'm sure Mangrove's gonna come up a, a bunch more, and I, I do have more to say about it. Um, but I do remember, like, once I watched Mangrove, the first thing I texted you guys was that Mangrove is everything Trial of the Chicago exactly. Seven <laughs> wanted to be. Yep. Um, so I'll just I'll stop there. I, I do have more thoughts on it as we get farther right. down our list. So you're number three, Jeremy. Uh, my number three is Jonathan Raymond and Kelly Reichard for First Cow. Um, so here's where structure uh, in a screenplay gets back on my list. Um, I I just love the concept of using some, something so small as utilizing milk from a cow to then build a business and sort of build the American dream for these two guys, but they have to do it uh, secret, secretively because they could literally be killed for it. And it's it's just a perfect... Which we which and, we know because of the way the script is structured. Right. It's just with a that perfect analogy yep. to what she's trying to tell us about living living in America um, and, and the struggle of that. And, and with all these movies that I talk about sort of the like reconciling with with being an american i i think i think the problem is that like especially even now especially in 2020 in the last year, couple of years we've had like that there is difficulty in re- like reconciling being from this country and i think these films first cow 
in particular does a great job of articulating it through a story. Mm. Um, and it's such a simple story, but it works so well. And, and not only does she, is she or are they both able to, within the structure of the screenplay, tell that aspect of the story, but also uh, develop the relationships that are so key for this movie working. And I think that's just brilliant. And that is, uh, I'm almost convincing myself it should have been higher on my list. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's funny. Um, I, I think they also, just to add on to your point, I think they also make you understand the appeal of success and why people, exactly. Yep. you know, you, you sort of start rooting for those oily cakes and the oily cakes look good to you, especially if you've been fasting. Um, and so it's so funny. It's such a been. simple, simple yeah. concept. And, and it's like, make, it makes the basics of, uh, of human need of food. So, so palatable, like you want, right. you see this but, food and you just but want it's just, it. It's just also that like, you know, you make these things, you set up this like very basic storefront and you sell them and it's like, Oh yeah. So the American dream, like it is sort of so, tangible and and easy in a way and that's like this there's this appeal to it there like success but is just right there but yes you're right there's all these other dangers there's these dangers that in trying to that like it. yeah that, that can happen yeah great great point uh it's my turn right um, my yep, number, three number three is um florian zeller and christopher hampton for uh the father um christopher hampton developed uh did the English translation of the initial play, and then they decided to write the screenplay together. And of course, Florian Zeller would go on to direct the film. Um, I mean, you guys remember what I said about this because it was so recently, but I just, I found this movie to be just like such a brilliant concept and the way they told it, I think owes a lot to the structure of the screenplay um, and presumably the structure of the play as well. Um, and it owes a lot to the screenplay here. I just think like, it's incredibly intelligent to tell this film the, in, in the way they did. And I feel like we did that podcast so recently. I don't need to talk too much. Tomorrow. Yeah. It's a, it's an honorable mention for me, but I, I left it off because I think the filmmaking itself is what yeah. really elevates it to where I'm with you, Jeremy. it is. Honorable so, mention for me great. too. Um, well, we can move a little bit quickly here because my number three is another round, Thomas Vinterberg and Tobias Lindholm. Um, the only thing I'll add here, just because I want to make sure that I'm pointing this out is this is this is a a good example of what I was talking about with just real people, real moments. I mean, you see these characters go through like very real, authentic life experiences that aren't overly dramatic or overly complicated, but relatable. And I liked that a lot. And you you know, Chapin kind of said jokingly, and like obviously not joking that we'll do it, but joking about it that we're gonna do this experiment because it's like, yeah, like this feels like something that like, people would do like it's just there's some, like it's just there's a there's an authenticity to it. we throw that word authenticity on authentic around a lot but there's an authenticity to it that just that felt very natural um i love this i loved this screenplay um this was a movie i i did not love the first time around but stuck with me and i rewatched it i'm glad i did uh that's my number three jeremy you're up number two uh my number two is jack fincher for Mank. Oh, fuck. This definitely took a second viewing for me to get to (laughs) where I was. Um, 
on this film and uh, of course i absolutely love it and i'll talk more about the film itself but let's just stick to the the screenplay now i mean the brilliance of this screenplay is in how in how it tells the story of maybe what is considered the best screenplay ever written and to tell that story while incorporating the themes of the original movie without actually ever getting too too drawn into to pulling from Citizen Kane. And that was the problem I had with it the first time and I mentioned on the the podcast was I kept trying to find those little moments where it was sort of retelling Kane in a different way. But what I've come to appreciate about it since is that's not what this movie is. This movie is is its own sort of it's its own person in a way and i think what jack fincher does brilliantly here is tell that story and have have this movie have its own themes while still having small threads to to the original movie to to citizen kane and i think that's like terribly difficult to do it's it's terribly difficult to articulate um but uh, yeah, so number, my number two. That's it. I'm really excited to find out what your your number one is. Not to play my cards early, but yeah. Um, all right, Tapin, what's what's your number? Mine's two? first cow. Okay. Uh, Great. My number two is One Night in Miami. Um, so I I watched this movie twice, guys, and. Both times, both times I watched this movie, it just like, I don't want to say quickly, but eventually just left me. Like, hmm. I just had no The first time thought. you saw it? Both times. Both times it did. <laughs> and here it is, sits at number two? Well, be- but but the flip side of it is that both times I watched it, I was so engaged and like really, really enjoyed it. And I was trying to figure out why. I spent a lot of time kind of assessing this. And I thought about the direction. I thought about the acting. I thought about the screenplay. And and we talked very briefly about this movie. And, you know, Regina King does a good job directing this movie, but she doesn't do anything overly impressive. Like, she sort of just, like, sticks with tried and true methods. And that's fine. But I think as a result of that, it didn't leave a strong impression as a, uh, as a movie, mm-hmm. basically as a whole. But while I was watching it, I was so engrossed in the conversations these characters were having. I was... I was basically doing what I think this movie intended its audience to do is just like kind of listen and think about the points that they were making. And the idea behind these, you know, these four very famous people sitting in a room and discussing essentially what are current events for black people is still topical, sadly, but also really important to listen to. And I did. I found myself every both times I watched this movie fully invested in everything that they were saying and hanging on every word. And I think that's credit to the screenplay. And Kemp Powers um, is the writer for this, had a good year. He also is a screenwriter for Soul. And um, co-director. And this is, and this, base, this is based on Kemp Powers' play, right. too, uh, One Night I, in Miami. So I, think it, I just think the screenplay is where this movie deserves a lot of credit. It's it's really well written. The, the conversations are important, topical, and and 
you know, a, in laid out in a very well structured way. I think in a in a in a in a year where we have three adaptations of plays being important mm-hmm. aspects in the award um, season, in One Night in Miami, uh, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, and The Father, and also having. Um, uh, Trial of the Chicago 7, which, you know, is written by a famous playwright. And I think there might even be something else that I'm not thinking of. But, you know, the movies, The Father, I think, did something that those other three films didn't do. Was just like, they just felt too much. They just like could not seem to escape their roots as plays. And well, I think you're I, I right agree. about the screenplay here. I think... Um, I'm sure it was good and, and well-written, but I don't know if it's, if it's, if it's the directing we should blame, but in this case, in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, I just, I could not, and it even sort of seeped into, into performances as well. I could not escape the sort of theatrical presentation of these things. And it just, it just didn't, I think that issue got in the way for me. So I'm, so I'm, I guess I'm sort of agreeing with you, Lee, like that. I bet that I think I'm sure the script is great. I, I'm. I just think it. I, I think what you're saying is right. And like to say to say to you that you blame the direction. Like let's blame Regina King for this movie not resonating more. Makes it sound like her direction is bad. Yeah. It's not. It's actually fine. But I think we all agree that it's. It's not really anything more than that. Like she just does a good job with it. But you know, I, again, not to step on later categories, but the father makes an effort to separate itself from the proscenium of a play and and one night in miami and my rainy's black bottom don't necessarily do that that takes nothing away from the screenplay i think it's a really really well well written piece yeah it's interesting i agree with you as far as um how they're able to separate themselves from their original theatrical like i don't i think the father obviously does a great job um and i think ma rainy's black bottom does the worst of those three but i also would put ma rainy's black bottom ahead as far as screenplay i think hmm. it's a better i would agree better I, I would written agree material that. i have a question do we do All we right. want to guess what jeremy's number one is because i have no I have, idea i have no idea so <laughs> yeah i'd love to hear it so i well, do, do we, Lee, um, do we want to write it down and then we can hold it up to the screen to see who who gets it right? I I really I don't even know what to write, honestly, Chapin. Okay, I have a guess, but I will wait until. Okay, all right, hold on yeah. to it. We don't. We can take our word for it. You don't have to actually write it down. Jeremy, tell us your number one. My number one is uh, we just mentioned him: Kemp Powers, Mike Jones, Pete Doctor, Four oh, Soul. Soul. Oh, shit. That was um, not what I was gonna guess. <laughs> what were you gonna <laughs> I say, was gonna Chapin? Say Minari. Yeah, um, I, I just listened oh, to that okay. podcast, and I, Jeremy was the hottest on that movie out of the three of us. And uh, I mean, I loved this movie, and I think a lot had to do with just the... the I mean, Pixar's just so good at somehow quantifying the unquantifiable. Yeah. And Soul is, is another example of that. And the writings, I mean... It's all there on the page. Like it's not. It's not the, the cinematography. It's not the 
uh, great <laughs> anime, great animation. It's not the voiceover work. It is the screenplay that makes this work so well. And it's such a brilliant concept. Um, and then using that brilliant concept to sort of dive deep into the human experience, uh, to, to understand what is important in life. And I mean, if that's not the best screenplay of the year, I don't know what is. Mank is, Jeremy. Mank is. <laughs> Mank is. Uh, all right, I, I like that pick, Jeremy. I think I think it's great. I think uh, Pixar absolutely deserves a ton of credit for the work they do on their screenplays. It is the root of what makes a lot of their movies work so well. Um, so it is an admirable choice. But Chapin, your number one is yeah. Mank. I'm assuming mine is Mank as well. I mean. Okay, let me just say this first, and then, well, two things. One well, is, I'm glad I, I, I said, didn't pick, first off, I'm glad I didn't pick Mank, so we didn't have another three. Another sweep, feed. yeah. I'm glad too, yeah. Um, I said this on the Mank podcast that I think this is the best screenplay since The Social Network, which puts it in, in my opinion, maybe a top 10 screenplay of all time. But um, <laughs> this is the thing that I, I think will that's say. that's a bit much. Would you, if, if it's, if, if this is the best screenplay since Mank, I mean, since Social Network, would you guys say Social Network is a top 10 screenplay? No, no, I don't think it is the, the best screenplay since okay. Social so Network. Okay, so that's the part you don't agree with. Yeah. Okay. Well, we know, we know um, that because they just told us Soul but, is Yeah, better. you think Soul is better. You think Soul is the top, the best screenplay in the last 100 years. It, that's what I said, yeah. <laughs> um, but this is what I, 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 I want to put this out there because I'm curious how you guys will respond. Mank makes me wonder how much credit Aaron Sorkin deserves for the social network. Because look, Jack Fincher is the credited screenwriter for, for Mank. That's David Fincher's father. He probably does deserve some credit, but I think that David Fincher's handprint is all over this. You know that he worked the screenplay and was, and, and had a lot with, to do with, with it. Yeah, Wait until his dad died. And... and if you've listened to interviews, you know that it was in many ways collaborative um, with his father until his dad died. And then he obviously, you know, worked and made the screenplay, but you know, you see the, you see the parallels between the social network and Mank. And it makes me wonder uh, how much, you know, we always give Sorkin credit for that screenplay of the social network. It's great. But is Fincher really the one that deserves the credit? No, 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 because we talked about this and, and what's, what is abundantly clear from the special features on the, um, social network DVD is that Fincher works very closely with his screenwriters and we know that he influences them, but they are collaborators. Fincher has never had a, sc- a screenplay uh, credit. I don't think he will. Um, and so there's, and, and he hired Eric Roth to help like smooth out things they needed to do on Mank. Um, Eric Roth, we talked about earlier um, in 2020 as one of, I think our favorite, screenwriters and uh you know i think um i think being a top five director of all time which i'm I'm sure fincher is for all of us that means knowing how to work a screenwriter and and collaborating with them and you know jack fincher is his father and we i think there's a lot out there because he jack fincher died quite a while ago and and so when they took to making this film they had to rewrite it a little bit um and I'm sure that I'm sure this movie would never have been made while Jack Fincher was alive, because I don't I think that 
and I heard an interview with Sorkin and Fincher, and I think a lot of it, their relationship, it, it was difficult between the two of them. And I think mm. he wouldn't, David Fincher never would have gotten the movie he wanted to if he, if his father was still alive at the time. Yeah, I don't know. Um, mm. But I, I, that I, I, I don't agree with you. Lee, because I think this is part of the art of collaboration and the art of filmmaking is like taking two who I assume are just like titans and stubborn and challenging in their own right people and putting them in a room and out comes the social network, you know, um, and <laughs> that is part of the beauty and the, the of collaboration and what makes great art, um, not to sound too pretentious, but um and and Mank is interesting because it was written by one person who who has since passed away and then um taken on by another very famous writer, you know, under the supervision of a very powerful and famous director who happens to be the son of the original writer. And so there's the, all sorts of complications there. But yeah, this script is so so good and um you know, you like Jeremy to your point about uh Citizen Kane, like how do you even more sort of specifically, how do you write a movie where the main character is like one of the most clever screenwriters of all time? Like that guy is going to be so hard to write dialogue for and they do it. It's just, it's so extraordinary. Mm -hmm. And, and this movie you have to watch twice in order to get all the nuance and all the little quips and all the little things. And a hundred percent. And that's, you know, I think we really should have that conversation sometime on the pod about what, how we think about that thing, about those things, because you know, I my favorite film of last year was one that I think the the first time you watch it, this being um, Uncut Gems, the first time you watch it is will be your most important yeah. uh, viewing. Um, yeah, is it is it fair to the audience to require a second right. viewing? Like, it, what is but that? But this is this was yeah. made knowingly for a venue and a format where as soon as you finish watching it, you can watch it again or you can pause it and rewind it or you can turn subtitles on. So, you know, I think it's interesting. Yep. All right. So the fixie goes to for best screenplay, Jack Fincher posthumously for Mank. All right, guys, we're going to move on to Best Supporting Actor. And uh, Chapin, let's kick things off with you, uh, with your number five. Uh, you're going to hate this. My number five is Lucas Hedges from Let Them All Talk. Oh, for fuck's sake. Ooh, I like that. I like that I, pick. I wish I thought about that. I did I it. like this movie mm. a lot, and his performance stood out for me. You know, we, Lee, you've been critical of, of him in the past, and uh, I, I I don't know that I necessarily totally disagree with you, but I just liked his presence in this film. He was so sort of curious and interested in the these the weird relationships that his aunt has with these women, and um, I think he just like his character, the inclusion of his character was so interesting to me. He didn't really have a ton to do, like in terms of the plot, but um. I really liked him. I, I went back and forth between him and Charles Dance in Mank. And I think Charles Dance... Dance was an honorable mention for me. I think yeah. Dance was was good and had a presence that um, that Lucas Hedges didn't have. Um, but I don't think... I think Dance was 
what's his name in you know patriarch lannister in uh yeah, <laughs> in, and also you know everything else we've seen him in Tywin Lannister, like he's he's not doing that much difference. He's just like channeling what he does to be, um, Randolph William Randolph Hearst, and I, I liked him a lot in that. But I I think ultimately I was sort of surprised by Lucas Hedges. Why? So that's why he got the edge. Yeah, I I like that pick. I didn't even think about that one, Chapin. Um, this was definitely the one I had the most. This category was the one I had the most difficulty with. Uh, I. I only have one honorable mention. Um, but real quick, Lee, did you dislike that performance? Or no, is this just I'm, you didn't like I'm glad the movie you asked because, know, or? yeah, I didn't love the movie. And actually, but I, I, and I don't particularly like Lucas Hedges as an actor, but I did find his performance to be above the par that I've set for him. So I didn't dislike the performance. I didn't dislike any of the performances in that movie. That's where the whole, the whole term of good actors acting good came from. Um, no, it didn't. No, it but nothing. What was it? Oh, it was news of the world. Did I say it was a news of the world? <laughs> well, um, yeah, I just I, I didn't like that movie. I wasn't overly impressed with much in that movie, um, and I don't really like Lucas Hedges. So I, I also didn't remember that he was in it. So when Chapin said Lucas Hedges. I was like, what? For Boy Erased? <laughs> um, All right. Okay. Uh, my number five yeah. is Lakeith Stanfield in Judas and the Black Messiah. Um, okay. So maybe this is a, a lead role, but we're following the other award shows nominations uh, where he was nominated as a supporting character. Um the big thing I'll say about his performance is that I, I do think that any chance that this movie had sort of hinged on how the duality of his character was portrayed. And I think he nails that. I don't know that it's in the script necessarily, but you see it on his face. You see it in his actions. Um, Lakeith Stanfield is, I, I've nominated him for a fixie before for sorry to bother you. I think he's a fantastic actor and I think he handles the turmoil that, uh, his character is going through really well in this movie. And I think if anything worked, it was that. Uh, this movie had a lot of potential. It didn't always work, but he was excellent in it. And um, I think it deserves a lot of credit for bringing something that I don't think was really on the page. Yeah, well, we talked about that in the podcast, and I had my issues with it because I just I, I don't quite understand I like I said in the podcast, he was making decisions um, that I don't think the audience quite picked up on where they were going or why they were there because it wasn't on the page. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I had a hard time. I had a bit of a hard time with him in this. But I that will being say s- that my my number five was like I had like three different performances that were all in the mix for that. Um, yeah. It was it was a distant five from my other four. Yeah, I would say that for me too. That's a good way to put it because this uh, my number five, and he has he has almost just as many bad moments as good moments in this movie. Um, but his good moments are so good that I just i i i gave him the i gave him the nod, and it's uh, Delroy Lindo for the five okay. bloods. Uh, Does it tell me about the bad moments though? Uh, he is I think, really good I in this think movie. the bad moments the bad moments are just the same as everybody else's bad moments in that movie because 
that movie is what it is. It has a lot of bad moments in it, and I think they're uh, the result of the direction and the screenplay. But, you know, when they decide to really go for it, like that monologue he has, it's it's amazing. And he does a, a great job. Um, so uh, if, if you had told me in June when this movie came out that the only nomination that Delroy Lindo was going to get in award season was a fixie nomination, I would have been like, what? Because at the time you were like, oh, he's going to win best actor, best sporting actor or whatever. Like everybody was in love with that performance. And I remember thinking like, this is a good performance, but maybe a little bit overrated. But like, because I think like a lot of what you're talking about, like this movie's a little bit of a mess. So like, you're like, why is he, even though he's saying the things well, why is he saying the things? And and there are are people on this, on my list in in the actor categories and movies that didn't totally work for me, but. That movie was just such a mess that, and you can just, and I I don't know, because like a lot of people talk about how good that movie is. I don't know. Maybe we saw like a, it's not the bootleg cut or something on Netflix or <laughs> I don't know, like maybe they released it too soon or, or like, but, um, that was not a, I don't understand the praise for this, that this movie is getting. And, um, I love Spike Lee. I love what Spike Lee does, but, uh, ultimately, I have no idea why this film where um, what's his name from the wire jumps on a grenade and is the funniest moment, <laughs> funniest of, the moment year, of the year uh, is a great movie. But that, and so I think when I watched it, I was like, he is good. And I love Delroy Lindo uh, as an actor, but it, it was so sort of meaningless because of how he was used that I couldn't justify putting it on this list. That's fair. I agree. I I, 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 I want, agree with all that. And I want I want you guys to to remember what Chapin just said, just for a future point I have to make. But um, where are we here, Chapin? You're up with your number. I feel four. bad about this one, given his uh, issues right now. Um, but it's Shia LaBeouf for Pieces of a Woman. Um, hmm. uh, he is really it, good in it. To me, it's going to be a shame that I don't know where his career is going to go now. You know, he's been accused and I'm sure it's true that he's been physically abusive to his girlfriends. And I think it's interesting that last year we saw essentially his life story and it's not much of a surprise that he turns out this way. And I think there's something sort of inherently interesting about that as an artist, but um, his, there's a movie to be made about him now at this point, honestly, Uh, there's an intensity in his performance in this film. Um, You know, he plays this kind of like, attractive but kind of decidedly lower class person than his than his wife um and uh like you see that and it he kind of like indulges his worst impulses when his when this tragedy happens and i think there's just like i just felt so much empathy for him as a character and um i i often feel that way about him and and i think there's a couple other performances where i'll use the same note but like you're just kind of waiting for them to explode. You're waiting for them. You you can just feel this tension and this like bubbling of explosive energy. And, and I think there's few people that do that as well as Shia. And, and I'm sorry to put him on this list given his issues. Well, but. Chapin, I, uh, there's a part of me that's glad that you, you brought this, this performance up because there's something that I, you know, something somewhat personal that I'd like to, 
mention about that movie that I didn't get a chance to talk about on on the Pieces of a Woman podcast that that he in particular I think like really handled well and and resonated with me. So there's a scene in that movie where um, she's taking down these pictures of the ultrasounds of their baby, and he's like, "No, I want those pictures." He and and they get into a fight over it, and it's one of many instances that's sort of just you know exemplifying the struggle that they're going through. Well. When Lydia and I were trying to have kids, Lydia miscarried twice and before we had Miles. And when she got pregnant with Miles, uh, because she had miscarried twice, she was considered, I guess, technically a high-risk pregnancy. So she, as a result, she went in for more ultrasounds than are typical. And so these ultrasound pictures really became like very important to us to see that the pregnancy was going well and we have them all printed and framed and it was it was a, it was a really emotional scene for me to watch Shia LaBeouf's character in that movie show his attachment to those ultrasounds cuz I know exactly how that felt and I you know look like you can write that in a script and it can be a real moment but for an actor who you know we can assume hasn't been through that himself to portray that accurately is a really impressive feat and say what you know take everything else aside about Shia LaBeouf we don't want to uh, you know improve of like his behavior <laughs> no. but the guy is a good actor he was nominated for Fixies last year for um for uh Honey Boy and I think he does deserve a lot of credit for this movie I did think about him as a potential candidate for me. But I just think that scene in particular was so, so moving because he captured that exact thought process and feeling that I know exists and I have had myself. That's a great point. I mean, in, in that movie, you could see a way, especially the way it's written, um, it's not going to win any, it did not win any Best Screenplay Awards for me, but the way it's written, you could see that that, that you could see that it's it, w- it would, was, would have been possible for the male role to have given, had been really put in, in the back seat and Mm -hmm. he makes a tough decision. And ultimately I think kind of comes out as a little bit of a scumbag given what he accepts from her mother, um, in that film, but his emotional weight doesn't make you think of him that way. And what, what, what Shia brings to that role just, I don't know that you understand his thinking and, and, and his actions, but, you um you don't judge him for them because of how much empathy he has brought to that role right oh yeah i th- i thought he wasn't that great in it <laughs> <laughs> now that you guys say all that i just up against a vanessa kirby like i just i felt like i saw him acting like i could see see the wheels turning in his head as those scenes were hmm. going whereas her it seemed to just come so naturally i I feel my i might feel the opposite um and i i was much more impressed with her performance than his and that i i I had i struggled with his performance um all right my number four is malachi kirby from mangrove third category in a row mangrove's been nominated um I will say that I had a hard time pinpointing something specific to talk about in his performance. He plays Darkus Howe. Um, he's one of kind of your three key characters among the Mangrove Nine that are on trial. Um, but he does offer up 
and I'll bring it back to this: some of your real people, real moments. Moments. Is he? Is he the guy in that this owns movie? Mangrove. No, Sean that's, Park, that's he's that's uh that's um uh Frank Critchlow. Sean Parks plays him. Um, Darkest Howe is a friend of of Critchlow, and he um basically he has the monologue with the the tripod monologue with Critchlow that says like we need to march we need to go and we need to say that this is not okay that they keep coming to the mangrove and trying to break up our opportunities to speak and gather and protest and he also has just like the most satisfying moment of the movie where he just totally owns the police officers um uh, on cross-examination he represents himself in the trial and he says you know, gets th- all these 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 consistent stories from them, but then suggests how could you have all seen the same thing through this same little this peephole in the in the in the um, observation van, and it's just such a satisfying moment. And then he has this great moment at the end where he basically says, "Do whatever you want to me. I don't care. I am here for a bigger reason. I didn't do anything wrong. If you want to punish me for that, that's fine. I don't care. I am representing something bigger." And all of these moments, a lot of monologue are, you know, fine. You know, gr- good actors can deliver monologue if they're rehearsed, but I just think there's such impactful moments. I love his performance. And then a smaller piece is that he, while I think the acting across the board is really good in this movie, he does. he's married to um, the character of Barbara, who is played by, uh, I have her name written down here, I'm sorry, Um uh, Roshenda Sandel, who I actually think is one of the few bad performances in the movie. She Wait, so what, what's his name again? Darkest Howe. He plays Darkest Howe. The actor's name is Malachi Kirby. Well, the the, the actor's name is Malachi Kirby. Um, and he acts. He has a lot of scenes with his with his wife in the movie, played by um, played by Roshenda Sandel, who I I think overacts and is not particularly good. And she has these big explosive moments with him. And the way he contrasts that and handles those moments quietly make those scenes work and i think when you have a good actor in a scene with a a bad actor for lack of a better term the the good act when the good acting stands out more than the bad acting that is a that is a credit to the performance and i think kirby does just so many good things in this movie um again it's a it's a performance to root for it's a character to root for and I don't know much about this actor, but I'd love to see him in more because he just handles the material so well. Yeah, he was in a pretty memorable, um, I believe, I'm thinking if it's the right one, um, episode of Black Mirror that was really good. Oh, boy. I was, I was going to look it up, but Black Mirror, has, there's so yeah. many actors in Black Mirror. Yeah, it's, it's um, funny how many actors come from that. Um yeah, I, I totally agree with everything you're saying, Lee, and I might have more to say about him later. Uh, am I up for number, my number four? Or um, where are we? No, uh, Chapin's up. Yep. What are we on? Oh, wait, no, sorry. Yeah, there Jeremy, you're up. you're up. Jeremy, you are up. Number four. Yeah. Uh, so this was the big one that we kind of fought about which category he was going to be in, um, and we sort of uh, decided to go our own way with uh, Kingsley Ben-Adir here from... Um, who plays Malcolm X. Oh, I actually wrote, accidentally wrote that he's from Malcolm X, but it's from One Night in Miami. Um, I just, this was my favorite performance of that movie. And, 100%. Uh, I know, um, what's his name from... Uh, Leslie Hamilton. Yeah, yeah Le- 
Leslie Odom's getting all the uh, the praise, and he was very good. But I, I really just every time Kingsley was on the screen, I, I just thought he did such a good job, and it was, you know, it was interesting watching. Oh my God! What was the other movie that had Malcolm X in it this Ollie. year? Well, we watched Ali. Oh, that we when we watched Ali, yeah, when we watched Ali, that performance of Malcolm X and the similarities there. Um, well, uh, not to mention Denzel. Well, <laughs> I know. I it's been so long since I've seen that version of it, but um, yeah, I I just think that Kingsley brought this sort of quiet, powerful stature to that performance. That I I mean, and, that's not on the page. I agree, and it's the it's the intense dedication that Malcolm X had that you see, and really, honestly, like, and I don't know if this means that the actors deserve more credit or less credit, but like all of the actors who we've seen play Malcolm X sort of capture this. It's this intense dedication to their cause, and like, really, you feel that they believe the things that they're saying, and and Kingsley Benadier really, really captures that in this movie. I, I, I agree with you 100%. This is the best performance in that movie. Leslie Odom Jr. is good, but I don't understand why Kingsley Benadier was overlooked. Yeah, I, I liked him too. Um, <clears throat> Malcolm X is a great, fun character to play. I think what I <laughs> Super particularly uh, I plan. <laughs> thought about him was that he, he seems to be wrestling... And this might be a, a negative against the movie because it's a little too cute, I guess. But he seems to be wrestling with the idea that like he's being hunted and will probably be assassinated. I don't know if that's mm-hmm. like a little yep. too kind of on the nose for a movie, but maybe. But he, the way he internalizes that as an actor, I think is just something we yeah, haven't and seen I'm, before. I, At least I, I, you're, I also, also I think that's probably accurate. Yep. yep. I'm sure the real Malcolm X wrestled with that as well. All right, Chapin, you're number three. So this actor had the rare occasion of solidifying his place on my list with a single word, a single line, and it was yoga. And that's Robert Pattinson and Tenet. Oh, man. Come on, guys. Come on. He was fun fun in it. I thought he was going to be more interesting. I thought he was going to get a little bit more uh, colorful. Like He was definitely the best best performance in that film well yeah the best performance in you know that who film. i liked a lot in that movie is aaron taylor johnson <laughs> like he is he talk about he is super fun in that movie <laughs> chapin i like robert pattinson in this movie but i don't know that like performance is any like, okay let me i've seen i've now seen tenet four times and my fourth viewing now i don't know what this says about the movie was my best viewing Things are starting to come together. But I don't know that performances are anything that I'll ever take away from this movie. Look, look. Yeah, I, I think I think Pattinson was doing something different, so it sort stood out, but I don't know if it was great. I do love when he says, Don't be enough in the air, don't be so dramatic. <laughs> yeah, look, like like um I feel I feel like Nolan has a Nolan is not a great director of lead or writer for that matter of lead performances. You know, I don't think anybody's going to with, I think with maybe the one exception of Leo uh, in inception, but I think even that one has gotten a lot of criticism, but he does leave room for these kind of like fun bail and prestige, bail and prestige. That's a good one. But also like, you know, Tom Hardy in, in inception, um, 
uh, Heath Ledger in The Dark Knight. And, and I think this one is just fun. And it was fun to see him kind of... I don't know. I, I just liked it, but I love that line. <laughs> Which line? When... when, when uh, you know they're starting to get ready for 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 in the vault for the air to get sucked out of the out of the place they're in, and so John David Washington is starting to do his breathing to get oxygen into his blood, and, and the the yeah. guy who's giving them the tour kind of looks at him and he goes, "Yoga." <laughs> I don't know. Um, all right, my number three is Paul Racy from Sound of Metal. Um, you know what? This is like. There's such a like direct matter of factness to this performance that is really unique. And not only that, but I thought it was a really interesting and smart decision for him to play this character as straight as he did. Like you never really see him happy or sad or angry or like it's just very direct. And I think that's why people in the movie respect him and take him seriously. I think that's why we as an audience take him seriously and I think that just kind of works for his character in a supporting role. It's another um, one of those sort of real people doing real things. It's a yep, real people, real moments. I think it's real people, real moments because he also his parent, both his parents were deaf. Mm-hmm. So he he, this was not a world unfamiliar to him. It was a world he grew up in. Um, you guys remember that and, I didn't necessarily agree with this opinion within the movie. Like his his decision, I thought was rather unfair. And the community's kind of strict living habits, mm-hmm. and and I, which I assume were set by his character, I didn't agree with. But it's so clear he's upset when Riz Ahmed leaves, and that moment is so tough for him. And the way he injects that with such empathy um, is so powerful that it makes. I think that was such one of the key like linchpins of this movie that made it elevated it above but, what you would sort of typically think would where where it would go like this guy just can't fit within this sober living place and it's it's a hard decision for the guy to make you can tell that on his face but it's that and combined with the directness like that and that's what i love it's just this matter of fact directness that like yes this is hard for him but like this is how it is this is what it's going yeah. to be and i i like characters like that i like characters that are written that way that are just like here's how it is i'm telling you this is, there is no gray area. And I think he plays that really well. Also, like, the, the that role of, of and, and I'm sure there's someone I'm thinking of that I, I, I can't name right now, but that role of someone who you know has lived a life, has has, has <laughs> yep. had issues with alcohol or drugs in the past and, and has reformed themselves. You know, he never has a moment when he's like, you know, God, I was... I was, I had a needle in my arm and a bottle in my hand. You know, he doesn't, he yeah. doesn't have that monologue, but you, no you know that yeah. from his, he wears, he wears that on he his does. face. He Absolutely. Even and that's, say and, and there's so much richness and such an asset. Like when, when, if you're writing a screenplay, like, you know what, this guy's face tells it all. I don't need to have any like two page monologue about his past. All right. Um, my number three. Yep. Carry I me. am going with uh, Lee's pick of Malachi Kirby for Mangrove. Love it. Uh, he was just... He, as this movie kept going along, he just seemed to get better and better, and you, you're just dr- drawn more into his character. Like, it wasn't like he had this scene-stealing um, moment early on in the does. movie. 
He oh, does yeah, have does, one. Yeah. yeah, he does have one eventually, but it, it's it sort of builds up to it slowly and slow, like it, until we get there, and then he's able to pull that scene off as well. But I don't know. There's just something so likable and mm-hmm. endearing and genuine. And you just, yeah, and just yeah, genuine about him, and you just you totally sympathized with him. You wanted to give him a hug, and he just he did <laughs> so such true. a good job in this film. I love that. I lo- you really do want to give him a hug. I love it. Um. All right, Chapin, you're number two, sir. <clears throat> well, um, you know when uh, what's the director? Uh, when when the director came to me and asked me if he could, if I could lend out Daniel Kaluuya, mm-hmm. I said yes, you can have him, as long as he you know is high up there on the fixies, and he was, and that's of course Daniel Kaluuya from my acting troupe for Judas and the Black Messiah. That's my number a, two. A well. performance that that's also my number two. A performance that just like I'm, exceeds I'm, the I have no idea the quality of the movie. I, I like this movie, and you know what, I feel like we're all going to get a chance to watch this again and maybe it's going to jump a little higher. Hopefully, I don't know. It's just that this movie had so much potential and we were all like sort of, you know, excited for it, at least in the last couple months of 2020 and, and then ultimately underwhelmed. And like yeah. this, he's just such an extraordinary actor. Uh, like the, what he does with the, just like the, the quiet moments and the big moments. Like, I think that's a tough thing to do in a movie where, you're this performative oh, sure. character great point. who's like revolutionizing a people and making these big powerful speeches and screaming and yelling and pulling that off convincingly, but then having these quiet moments where he's essentially just like falling in love with a woman, you know, and, and, and I loved, I loved that there was not much in between either. It was like, he was either doing the big moment where he was larger than life or he, it was almost like his body needed to take a break. Like he needed to rest up for those because those other quiet moments were, were everything in between. Totally. And like the, the thing about this performance is that like he, he has such a screen presence and such a, and he embodies this character so much that it's hard to, it's hard to like separate or it's hard to connect him and the movie because the movie doesn't necessarily do the same thing. The movie doesn't pull you in the same way that he does as a character. That's, so that's, every time he's on screen. It's so interesting you say that Lee, because he was on SNL last week. I don't know if you guys saw that. I, I don't want, I hate SNL. No. I don't watch it. Um, and the skits he were in were largely bad, but like he, he, and he's not accustomed to that live performance and you can tell like he stumbles over lines a little bit, but he's got such a presence. Like even in those scenarios where he's supposed to be funny, we've never seen him really be funny, maybe a little bit and get out, but, um, he's got such like a really, such a great, like you just love him. He's so dynamic. Yeah. All right, so that was all of our number twos. So I'm, I, I'm I, very confused where this is going. I'm confused where this is going. I also want to just point this out ahead of time because something that's never happened before is a, a, a Fixie Award has, n- has never been awarded to someone who didn't get number one on at least one of our lists. Wow. I don't know what's going to happen here at number one. Daniel Kaluuya was number two on all of our lists. Hmm. Um, so let's see. So Jeremy, uh, you're up, right? No, Chapin, you're up. Yes, yeah, Chapin, uh, yeah. you're, mine was, you're 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 mine number one. Racy. Okay, and that's also my number one. Okay, so that clears things <laughs> up a little bit more. 
Um, we've talked about him. My number one guys, I went with my heart here. Honestly, my number one and two was like I want. I was trying to figure out a way I could just flip a coin between Kaluuya and this actor, but it's Kingsley Benadire. I loved his performance in this. I thought it was so dynamic. Mm. I thought it was a lead performance. You guys know I pushed on that for a little yeah, bit. Yeah, you but, kept going, oh, let me um, put him a lead. And I'm like, I don't have enough supporting <laughs> actors. I need them over here. <laughs> um, but does that doesn't really matter. I just think he he is just like controls this movie, drives this movie forward, it, and just has every aspect that I'm looking for in a performance, especially one from a movie that relies so much on performance. Um, but you guys both went with Paul Racy. Anything yeah. else to add with him? Yeah, I'd love to because like this was the this was. Mm, I don't want to say it was my favorite performance of the year, but it was the performance of the year for me. It was the one when I saw it, I was like, I can't see anything topping this um, mm. in that category for me. I, I just loved him. I just, I felt for him. I understood him. I think he was just so perfect for who that man was. And maybe he partly is that man. I don't know if, Doesn't I don't matter. know if, yeah, Racy has any, issues or past issues with drugs and alcohol like i said i do know he 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 grew up uh in the deaf community uh but he's able to he's able to articulate that those feelings to other characters so well with such gravitas that you just you sort of just listen to everything he says and and, and hang on every word and I just so loved I don't, it. I don't. I don't think that he does have that history, Jeremy. I don't know for sure, but like, what from what it sounds like, from what I've read, is that he, you know, he's been acting in like in you know in the grind for years and years, right. and just like taking TV roles or whatever. And then now, you know, now look at from what it sounds like, he's gonna now be a fixie winner. So like, awesome, amazing for him. Like all his hard work, he finally gets the role that is like really right up his alley, and he can and he can nail. Um, and I think that's amazing. I do want to ask Chapin what, like, what put him ahead of Kaluuya well, for you? So it's interesting. I, I'm pretty particular about supporting roles in that I think they need to. They can't just be like smaller roles. And I think like you could have made an argument that Kaluuya and Lakey Stanfield are both lead, leads. Yeah. I don't know. Like it, I, I, it's hard. I agree. Like, in a world where. You know, it makes sense that Anthony Hopkins as Hannibal Lecter is a lead role, but he's got like eight minutes of screen time or something like that. I agree with that, but also it's it's weird. Um, but but Paul Racy really just like he he embodies yeah hundred percent that supporting. world yeah. that Riz Ahmed's character, who is the who is definitely the lead of that film, enters, and he's the voice of that sober living area space and the voice of that um i think rather controversial sort of belief that you know you can't be in the death you're you're not a no you're no longer a part of this community if you seek out ocular implants you know like that to me seems like a very evil thing to do but because it's communicated by such a empathetic, wonderful actor like Paul Racy, you give it a second thought and you understand where he's coming from and you 
you understand why this place exists because of this character. You know, like the rest of them are kind of like there and he's got that woman who helps him, um, you know, sell off his RV and, uh, but, but really Paul Racy embodies that, that part of the story. And I think it's so important in that movie. And that is what a supporting actor does. Like they're there, they're important in the moment. They create a place for our, our character to it, to live and to inhabit and to change. And then you move on. Yeah, Lee, he also reminds me of those characters we just like that are good at their jobs. Yeah. That's you true. know, that just yep. command and understand what they're doing. And you like when they're on screen. Like you, you like just... you feel relieved when they're on screen because they're gonna take yep. care of the situation. Totally and true. he's one of those as well. So uh without further ado, do you wanna just yep. say it? The fixie goes to Paul Racy for Sound of Metal by the narrowest of margins. All right, we're going to move on to Best Supporting Actress. So I will kick things off here with my number five. Uh, Chapin, I will um, I will point to the uh, point that you made on just movies not necessarily working and making it difficult to give an actor credit within them. But I am nominating Tony Collette for I'm Thinking of Ending Things. Um yeah, for my two, number five. that's two nominations for that for you. <laughs> it is. And like I said, this movie did not work, but there are a lot of things that work in it. Uh, and Tony Collette is one of them. I, I mentioned to you, Jeremy, on the podcast that as much as we do love Tony Collette and as often as she has been great in movies, I think this is actually one of her best performances. And it is sort of an actor's dream. She gets to change who she is and how she behaves and performs over and over again throughout the scenes that she's in. But I think that's a huge credit to her. Like, she is so creepy and, like, so mysterious. And I just think that she is the perfect actress for this role. Yeah, to, what a, to, what a to weird face she was conf- blessed with. It's so true. Like, she can be beautiful and, like, incredibly ugly at, like, yeah. this and, like, two, like, right next to each other. And, like, it, it, it oddly works perfectly. Our, our- Ari Aster can make anybody ugly, even uh, Florence Pugh. That's true. Um, but look, like I, I just think like the way her performance changes in this movie is is pivotal to the the confusion that you're sort su- you're supposed to kind of have. Now, again, Kaufman doesn't resolve that for you in this movie, and that's a big problem with it as a whole. But if we're judging things on an individual basis, I think Colette deserves a lot of credit for how she captured this character and how she makes the scenes that she's in important in sort of messing with the mindset of our main character. The whole purpose of uh, the scenes with with Jesse Plemons' parents is to start to confuse us and start to make us question what is actually happening and who everybody is. And Colette nails that. I just think it's such a fully embodied performance that she gives. And like I said, it's sort of an actor's dream. She gets to just do everything in it. But in doing so, she nails every aspect of it. Yeah, I didn't think of it. I'm not going to disagree with you. I'd have to rewatch it. Um, which, I, so. which I wouldn't d- encourage. 
Yeah, it's not, which isn't going to happen. That's the problem with that movie. I'll just go with yeah, I agree. It was such a traumatizing Um, moment when that podcast popped up on my feed that I realized you guys had done it without me that I uh, I don't think I can ever see that movie without, you know, having flashbacks. Crying. All right, Jacob, give us your number five. Oh, you're going to hate it, Lee, but it's Candace Bergman in uh, Let Them All Talk. That's also my number five. Well, as long as it's your number five, I consider that just a throw-in. No, actually, this was... So, the best supporting actor, I had the most difficulty because I had literally w- one honorable mention on that, which I didn't even say. It was Bo Burnham for Promising Young Woman. Uh, but best supporting actress, I this was too many. Mm. Too many mm. options. And... Um, the fact that I That's always knew that was my favorite performance in that movie. And I always knew I wanted to get that movie into the fixies just to annoy Lee. <laughs> Specifically <laughs> to annoy Lee. Uh, and you did. And I did. And she was definitely my favorite performance in that film. I don't know. Film. But then Chapin went and nominated Lucas yeah. Hedges for that movie. That so was he also might have one up to you. I had to double down. Yeah. Other than obviously Meryl Streep is going to be my best. Well, actress. she Candace Bergman and really like. <clears throat> I swear to God, if that f- she embodies the. Let's not spend too much time. I'm on this. hosting. You know I will Fuck shut. It. Let's this just move off. on. Let's just move on. Next, next category. I mean, next, next. You guys category. don't have. See, you don't even Jeez. have anything to say no, about Candace I, Bergman. I like she, she embodies good. the theme of the film, which is like, you know, like she's the most interesting character. She's got the most kind of to do in the film, but she also is part of the resolution of the film. And I love her, her character's, um, you know, sort of boldness at the end for asking to be compensated for being for the for being based having the uh, her six, successful book based on her life. I think that's extraordinary. But let's move on. Let's yeah. And I also just like seeing her in in stuff because you know she hasn't been in a lot. I mean, she's most famous as a television actress from the early 90s is she or is she more known to see her sort of 70s movies she was in and okay so but to see her embrace like this very flawed character that's aging um i I don't know i just i really liked it i really enjoyed what she did with that character um (laughs) and well deserved all right so Jeremy, I, I think it's interesting you pointed out that you're, the best supporting actress category is one where you had a lot of candidates. Um, mm-hmm. I had I I had a lot of candidates, but I didn't necessarily have like when I put Tony Collette at my number five, which I was comfortable with. It was sort of ahead of like a bunch of people who are like, do I really? Is this really my number five? Is this person really in my top five? But then when you get to my top four, which starts now, <laughs> it is a it is a Good legitimate like impressive category. It's a who's um, who of fixie nominees. And my number four is Olivia Coleman. That's for also the my number four. Whoa. Okay. I'm actually, I am shocked by this guys, but go ahead. So this is, I mean, Olivia Coleman, she tend, we love her fixie winner. I think she is probably one of our favorite actresses, but up she, until this point, I thought she was going to be a uh, two time fixie. Yeah. Well, look, I, and I don't blame you. And like, there's a part of me that I was just like, how is this performance? How is Olivia Coleman my number four? Because she, she's typically a scene stealing actress, right? Like, even if you think about the favorite, right? Like, we love 
her we loved Rachel Vice, also a winner, a, a fixie winner for that movie. We all, we all liked Emma Stone in that movie, but when Olivia Coleman was on screen, she was stealing scenes and and in other cases even if it's not as a dramatic a role, she is often the best actress in the in the scene. So she is stealing the scenes. So to take an actress that it, like like that and one that we have an impression of like that and putting her into a position, we mentioned this on the Father podcast, putting her into a position where she has to be supporting and she cannot steal scenes. And then she is able to successfully execute that seamlessly is such a credit to her acting abilities. And I just think she's such a good actress that maybe I take her for granted and maybe that's why she's my number four. But, I, you know, again, I love her. I just, it, it just makes me so happy to give her a nomination. Well, I'll wait till I uh, she comes up for me to talk about her. But Chapin, that's also yep. your number four. Okay. Any thoughts? No, I I agree with everything you said. I I, I think uh, I forgot. I think it maybe I think it was you, Jeremy, who who pointed out. You know, we talked about the the role of the the family member in these films, which is often of which was the focus of still Alice. I think you, I think you mentioned Jeremy and Lee, you talked about it too. Um, and she embodies that. And we see the pain of that situation, but we also see the coping and like the, that effort to normalize things and to keep things level and like, you know, positive from her as well, which is hard to do, you know, like, your your impulses as an actor go to like let me stand out and let me make my scenes and let me be recognized and she's so often just like but no dad I, I never t- what are you talking about I never tell you told you about Paris and like those that choice in, instead Perfect. of instead of saying like can I nominate Chapin yeah, for a fixie thank you yeah <laughs> instead of saying like dad you know making that like a bigger moment it's just like yeah you know just yeah. just like this is. I've dealt with this. There's, there's some history here. I understand that like I've been doing this for years and years and years with my father and um, I just don't want it to blow up into a bigger thing. And, 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 and you get that information exchange from her performance alone, which is extraordinary. And she's an extraordinary actor. And And like the crown was like such, so good in 2020 this year. And she was so good in it. And like, she just, she's always doing great stuff. And I also wonder like, like if you take your example how much is that like on the page you can do it either way how much of it is her deciding how much is the director saying no tone it down pull it back or is she sort of just understanding where it needs to be i want to say a uh, lot of it is her because as queen elizabeth that that is often her role like she's often like the person sort of putting the fires out you know like and I, and I mean in like sort of minute emotional ways, like, you know what, don't react this way to this. Like this, this is who we are as Royals. We are, we, 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 we don't present an emotional face. We don't comment on the day's political things. You know, we wrestle with things internally, but like, don't let them get out of hand. Um, yeah, she's extraordinary and yeah. All right, Jeremy, you're number four. Uh, my number four is. Yu Jung Yan. Oh, wait, that, for no, no, that was Minari. your number. Olivia Coleman was your number four because it was my number four too. No, it wasn't. No, it was no, my number it four. It was Lee's. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes. Shaping you too much I champagne. Have. I've yeah, <laughs> I'm on my I'm on, I've I've emptied the bottle. I haven't finished it, but 
Um, Yu Zhang Yun, yeah. Okay. We're only yeah, the Minari. best supporting actress. I know. The rest of this is going to get real good. It's just part one. <laughs> um, this was this was just a fun performance to watch, and I she had so much fun with it. It could have gone. I mean, how many movies have you seen with the grandmother comes in and love it? Yes, yes. Yeah, she's just like the wise old grandmother or the annoying old grandmother. Um, uh, in this one, she's kind of neither of those. She's just sort of the fun-loving. Her, she has her own personality. Like when when this character was introduced into this movie, what are you waving at, Lee? <laughs> no, me and Chafin are both raising our hand. Yeah, when this character was introduced into this movie, you... Or at least I took it as this was going to be the strict grandmother f- coming from the foreign land. She smells like sort Korea. Of ju- that was going to judge and put down everything that they've been going for and say, this guy isn't good good enough for you or this life isn't good enough for you. I need to. And that was not the case at all. And I just I really enjoyed it. Go ahead. Uh, Lee. Yes. Okay. I, I agree a hundred percent that like this character could have been meaningless, like completely meaningless. It's just just another challenge for this family. Not only do they have to like adapt to this new environment, not only do they have to make a farm, not only do they have to, you know, deal with like making money, but like they also now they have to take care of their their mother, right? But it's just so much more than that. I think she infuses so much humor and life into this movie that it makes. I think the movie changes completely when she arrives and i think for the good i I think i might be harder on this movie than is warranted but i think this is a forgettable movie without her and i think inserting her in the way that she exists in this movie is so important and i just i loved her performance and then not only that you add the aspect that her performance changes she she has a stroke and she goes from this like like loving funny irreverent character to this one that's just completely like broken and uh, incapable of taking care of herself and i just i think that that's such an amazing shift and and credit to her performance to be able to pull that off and and the movie goes with it the movie goes yeah, with her a, performance and i don't point. think that's mm-hmm. something that everybody realizes she's kind of an amuse bouche like you've got these like serious lead actors and the adults in this film and and you're like, oh, they're they're both like like one of them is just like complaining about everything and doesn't like being there. The other is like dedicated to his work and like just a pain in the ass. And then she comes in as just like a palate cleanser for the film. And yeah, um, I just I love where that goes. I mean, I I hope we get a chance to talk more about Minari because I I feel like I listened to our podcast again yesterday in preparation for today and. I don't know. That movie is fascinating to me, but I, I, yeah, she's absolutely the best part of that film. And I'm glad she's getting recognition from the Fixies and others. Specifically, yeah, okay. I agree. Um, all right. Am I up now? Yes. Yep. Um, my number three is Letitia Wright for Mangrove. That is also my number three. Awesome. I mean, okay, first of all, I think, although this has not been confirmed, I think that she is about to explode, and I, I'm sure that has a, a lot well, to do with my nomination. Be once it's here. Well, yeah. Wait, hold on but, a second. Well, I had nominated. She yeah. either was on my nomination or just just missed in 2019 for the um, Black Panther for me. 
Is that who you have? Did I you have her? I can't remember as... if I did or not. I thought I did, but um, I know you. I, I think you may have. Then I have to go back and look, um, because I know you know you at least had talked about somebody from it, it would Black it would have been her. I, I have it right here. Um, I can pull it up. Uh, I don't see her on here. Maybe. Um, you sure you didn't nominate? Anyway, let's let I, I don't see her on here, but I, I remember you talking about somebody from Black Panther. To and, me, it would it would have been and her. being impressed with her, but she is she's sort of in line to become the quote the Black Panther uh, since the passing of Chadwick Boseman, and I think that's a lot what a lot of people assume is going to happen. And of course, if that happens, she will explode. I would actually love for that to happen. I think that would be a, an incredibly progressive and important thing to happen for that for that movie and for our culture and everything but I also love her as an actress and I love her in Mangrove and for all the same things you talked you mentioned and we both talked about with Malachi Kirby in this movie Jeremy like you just like empathize so much with her and it's another real person dealing with real moments and just nailing the monologues of course but like you know representing a character in a in a struggle that is universal. Like you see yeah. her, you see her dealing with these things that she could either put up a fight against or succumb to. And she just continuously puts up a fight. She, and she's so fucking good at getting mad. Like in, in you understanding that. And it, yeah. And like, not an overly dramatic. Mad. No, it's it, you just like, yes, that you get it. And you're just like behind her. She's just really, really good at that. And I, I yeah, this performance is in, in a, movie full of memorable performances and that's something we re- we really should take away from mangrove is there i think everybody is brilliant in that movie and i'm sure we're going to have more nominees i mean this is already two uh nominees from that film um four four total if you count from each of us yeah right two, exactly so have, yeah. uh yeah she's just she's just so focused she's just so she understands the stakes that are involved and can articulate them to the audience. And I think that is, it's hard to do and it's hard to write a character like that. And it's hard to perform a character like that. And also what might be lost is Jeremy, somebody good at their job. You see it at the beginning. She shows up, she says, Hey, I am, I am part of, I am part of the black Panther chapter, but I am here to support you as union workers. Like, I just think she is so competent and so like, she she is, you know, when we talk about the character good at their job, it's like when they show up, we feel like everything's going to be okay. When she speaks, we feel like everything's going to be okay. And I love that about her performance. Right, Chapin, your number three. My number three is Gina Rodriguez from Kajillionaire. Really? I thought, Wow. I'm surprised that's the performance that you yes. went with. So, I see. I didn't like. I did movie. not. I I, I, I did. really did not like that movie. Um, in in re- I liked the first retrospect. I, I think say, it's but. about being an only child. That movie, which I can relate to, but uh, Gina Rodriguez has to be this character who comes into this weird relationship with this mother and father and daughter who are <laughs> struggling to get by and like do various schemes to um you know keep their life afloat and she has to come in and upset the apple cart by essentially being someone that um uh 
what's her name falls in love with what's the character what's that actress's name who evan rachel, evan wood. rachel wood yeah um and you know honestly i think her performance and i think it's barbara hershey and um no that's not barbara it? hershey is it um and what's his name um richard Jenkins. Deborah Deborah Winger. thank you sorry Deborah Winger and Richard Jenkins. I think they're all on a different wavelength. Like they're they're into the movie that I didn't really like and did not work for me. But then Gina Rodriguez comes in and is like kind of seduces them all in a way, but particularly seduces Evan Rachel Wood. And I fell in love with her and I understood why Evan Rachel Wood fell in love with her. And she just plays this pivotal role that is like such a, an important supporting part where like a character comes in and becomes motivation and and upsets the plot in a way that's really powerful and um i loved her and and jeremy i know you hated her in the much maligned uh annihilation um yeah i didn't like her in this either well i, I don't think she's a very good actress. i don't think, I think she's, she's fine good. in this it's so funny chapin because you you talked about kajillionaire and you were like, you know, this movie is interesting, but like there's a performance that could have some fixy consideration. So I like watched that with that in mind. And this just like is proof of like how we influence each other. And I'm watching this movie and I'm just like, OK, I got like somebody in here is a fixy candidate. I got to find who it is. I'm like, oh, Evan Rachel Wood, she's doing something interesting. She's making some interesting choices with what she's doing. Richard Jenkins, he's always good. Maybe it's one of them. And they like I, I didn't dislike any performance in this movie and they all sort of ended up as honorable mentions except for Regi- Gina Rodriguez like never crossed my mind yeah I think this might potential. go down this might go down in history as one of the worst fixing <laughs> sure. nominees no, I, uh, I don't I think fun. she's I think she's fine in it I don't think it's that dramatic I just think this is not something that I considered I, you know what? Gina Rodriguez has announced as playing Carmen Sandiego, so like she's oh, on that's my radar. Pretty good casting for that. I mean, uh, I did. I just didn't like Cajillionaire uh, in general. I thought it was Lanth the most light. I, like, it, 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 I just didn't think it worked. It, the no. humor didn't didn't I, work I for like, me. I liked it actually. Although I should say I liked the first half, and then it sort of fell apart at the uh, as it went. But. I, anyway, yeah, I, that's an interesting nominee. I do think, but I, do think I do, my I do think like it is, is kind of brilliant though, and uh, it's good insight, Chapin. It feels like a little bit like a number five. Yeah, yeah, you know, no, where but, it's I, but like I just, a, I just really liked her, and 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 I thought like, like she has to, she has to upset this weird group of people, and so you sort of have to fall in love with her, and also you have to understand why. I mean, I just said the same thing, so but yeah, I. Yeah, I thought the only one in it that actually I I would get if if nominated is Evan oh, Rachel I thought War, you would for the decision she made. Uh, no, I think so. Yeah, that's an interesting. You have you have to be on board with the, the decision that she made as that character. And yeah. if you are, then that performance works. If not, then it absolutely does not. Um, okay, my number two is Yu Jung Yoon. Talked about her. Loved that performance from Minari. Wow, number uh, two, Chapin. You're Amanda Seyfried, Mank. Amanda Seyfried from Mank for your number two. You want yeah, to I, I, I thought, um, you know, like we're always loving these surprise performances and, and you, you know, she's been around a long time. She's, she's good in, she's sort of dumb and funny and mean girls. And she was in, um, she was like, okay. In, uh, first reformed. Um, but, she's just effervescent in this role. Like, like 
and 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 it's almost as if like the movie can't handle how good she is like you know you you like i actually found it kind of strange that like i told you guys this when we when we reviewed the film initially that she's such a great character that i feel like mank loved in a in a very strange way in the way that his wife points out these sort of strange platonic relationships that he has with women um that like i i didn't understand why uh um and i'm sorry i keep forgetting what what her name is in in citizen kane but when the marion uh susan Susan alexander Alexander is like such a i don't I think that that's a big hole in Mank is that like, why does he write Susan Alexander that way when, when, um, cause it's not supposed to be her. But why not? Why not? They, they do address why it. Not? Yeah, they do address but, it. I think what Javen's saying is he wants to know. Yeah. Why don't they address it? Why? Wh- what is the deeper story yeah. there? Who is it yeah. then? So, but I, and I think that's a fair, but she's, she's just like such a, Again, like Everbest, and she's got so much energy, and um, you know, I'm just sort of stumbling on this now. But you, you can kind of understand why Mank kind of keeps coming back to um, Hearst Castle because he likes her so much because she's so likable, um, and and you know, like she's just she's just I feel like she she's someone that's like on the periphery of wealth of this like great wealth, um, and and those people are often like a little aloof and a little removed from, from society. And I think she represents that in a weird way. But she way. has a self-awareness. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and like, you know, the girl from Brooklyn and blah, blah, blah. And, um, well, it's interesting The the, the Sorkin slash Fincher, uh, podcast that I listened to where basically Sorkin asked Fincher about this movie. He straight up asked Fincher, like, how did you know uh, Amanda Seyfried? Say your last name. Seyfried or Seyfried? I don't know. Seyfried. Sure. But he was like, "How did you know she could pull this off?" And Fincher's like, "I didn't really like. I'd liked her and stuff, and I did like. But he's like, I didn't didn't know that she could. And I, I would I would feel the exact same way previous to Mank. Like, how do you like that is such that's such bizarre casting to me. It is. It's, it's, it is bizarre. Um, and you know, weirdly enough to, to Fincher's credit, not someone except with the, with the one exception of girl with a dragon tattoo, not known for, and I guess, um, gone girl, not known for famous, you know, being, you know, the, the most, uh, the greatest with, with women protagonists. But, um, there are a lot of great, female roles in this. I really liked um uh I think her name is Tuppence Middleton as uh Mank's wife. Mm-hmm. I really liked um Phil Collins's daughter as um his his care yeah, Lily, Lily Collins. Collins yeah. Um I mean there's a lot of great female performances in this film and I'm glad because like I didn't like I didn't like the age gap. That just bothered me. From who? From the wife and Mank. Oh, that didn't bother me. I didn't really. That didn't really bother me. Um, all right, where are we? Jeremy, you're number two? Yeah, I'm on number two, yep. Uh, it is Olivia Coleman for The Father. This is going to be an interesting category. Um, yeah. 
I thought there was no question who was going to be number one for me uh, until I saw the father, but the, the father put a wrench in a lot of categories. So, um, and ultimately I, I stuck with, with my decision, but we talked about it, what, two weeks ago on the father podcast podcast, but just what she's able to do in the subtleties and the underplaying of such emotional scenes works so well and uh, I feel like we've talked about it a million times and that's why she is number two on my list um great uh my number my number one is Amanda Seyfried I so I I love her in this movie and I also really love her as an actress I, I you know you mentioned briefly Chapin that obviously she plays sort of a silly character in in Mean Girls and I'm, I'm not gonna pretend that I was just watching Mean Girls 10 years ago and I was like, oh yeah, watch out for Amanda Seyfried. But I do think that she, you know, Rachel McAdams has done a great job with her career, but I do think Seyfried has done a really good job at like, even if they're not always successful, looking and finding interesting and challenging roles to play. And I think this is sort of the the epitome of that. She is, you know, working with David Fincher, who is kind of the ultimate director of getting the best out of everybody and she puts a spin on a type of character that we're so used to seeing as a ditz and stupid. And she brings an intelligence to the role and she brings a lightness to the role. And you see the attraction and you see the appeal for everybody, for for Hearst, for Mank. And there's this one pivotal scene that, you know... Old Gary Oldman, of course, is going to get the credit for it because it's a long monologue where he's drunk and he goes to Hearst Castle. But the moments that resonate the most with me in that scene are the quick cutaways and to her t- face. You know, the she talks about one, that scene when and, she's, and she talks about how that scene took five days to film. And, and I, you know what? Does it, it? It was worth it because you see at first he shows up and she's excited to see him. Then later you see the devastation on her face when she starts to talk about he starts to talk about her. And like this is just this is this is top notch acting. We it comes up every year on the fixies where I, I bring up the idea of like actors that act good, say more in the scenes when they aren't speaking than they do in the scenes where they are speaking. And I think Seafried does a lot of that in this movie where you just like, you see everything here. And I just, I think this, she's an amazing actress. I hope she continues to find roles that are challenging. And I think it will reward her in the future uh, because I think she's an excellent actress. I think this movie uh, highlights all of her skills and I love her in this role. I love the way it's written and that's a credit to the screenplay, which of course we've, we've talked about. But I, I can't we, say enough. We talk about a lot about how we deride um, Fincher's uh, multiple take things, and I want to discuss that more when we get to other categories. But uh, she she specifically talks about this scene, as I mentioned, and shooting it, and how she would be sitting there and listening to this thing, and and, and in those scenes, and in that sort of dining hall in in Hearst Castle, and how she would like be kind of like disengaged from the scene, but remember that. There were so many, you know, so many cameras filming at some point, and so there there must have been some coverage of her. And so, I think Fincher's style works here, and and really, and really um, aids in performances because you can't just kind of like sit there and fall asleep and let and let Gary Oldman take over for a couple of days because there's a camera on you, and you need to react to what he's saying. And 
being present in that mm-hmm. moment is important. And um, I, I, I look forward to continuing that conversation in more categories. All right, Chapin, you're number one, which which is I'm a bit curious. of a mystery because he's already said Coleman, he's already said uh, Yun Yun Jun Minari. Okay, wow, wow, that's this amazing. Is be close. Jeremy, what's your number one? Seafried. Uh, I haven't said it, but it is uh, Seafried for Mank. All right, Chapin, you have anything nope. else to add, nope. or either of you guys on on these? All right, let's see. This is going to be close. I think I have an idea, but. The fixie for supporting actress goes to Amanda Seyfried. How close was it? How close? Twenty points for Seyfried. Seventeen points for Yu Jung Yoon. Fourteen points for Olivia Coleman. I mean, all all as a whole, this was definitely our closest category. Um, but Amanda Seyfried is the winner. Fixie winner. Wow. Um, so our winners, so we have for, uh, so far we have, um, Joshua James Richards for cinematography. We've got Jack Fincher for Mank, Paul Racy for Sound of Metal and Amanda Seyfried for Mank. Um, that's where we're going to leave you for now for part one. No surprise that it was an extraordinary first half of the Fixie (laughs) show. Congratulations to our winners and our nominees. Uh, we'd like to know your thoughts. Let us know. You can find us on Instagram. You can email us at feedback at gyffpodcast.com. And stay tuned for part two of The Fixies, where you'll find out our nominees and winners for Best Actress, Best Actor, Best Director, and Best Picture of the, the fucking year. Now, to reconnect to your earthly body. What am I doing with my life? I'm alive! I'm alive! Free yourself!